All right, so I think I think we've got the quorum. Uh, so, Shrub, as I was saying, I think I just wanted to get 30 seconds of my biases out there, if you want to call it mm-hmm. that, although I guess the sexy term is null hypothesis. Uh, and so I just wanted to give how I'm seeing the world and, you know, that could definitely change in a day or two. Uh, so by no means am I going to hold myself to that. But I just wanted to give a little bit of what I'm thinking about the world, and then I wanted you to give yours as well. Uh, and then we'll kind of kick it off from there. Uh, I think that's just a good good spot to just say like, hey, what's, you know, what is your null hypothesis? And so, look, mine, the, mine is the following. I, I'm a generalist who's just gotten super involved in commodities in the last two years. And um, just because I thought that, you know, decade of underinvestment, I'm a bit of a contrarian by heart, that sort of thing. And so I've kind of been there. It's obviously been a really strong year. Um And everything that has happened in the last couple of weeks is potentially a fundamental accelerant to to all the trends that have been happening in the last 18 months. Uh, I look at, let's say, the coal trade as an example. The whole point of that trade was that the market had left the sector totally for dead, literally wasn't even differentiating between whether, you know, whether you had metallurgical coal or thermal coal, one of which, you know, I get it why it could be terminal. Um, but, but the other of which, you know, we're going to be, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to be making steel for a long time. And so these stocks have been absolute animals for a long time, but with basically zero multiple ex- expansion. Um, and so what I'm incredibly worried about right now uh, in terms of reducing my exposure, because I see all the risks out on the horizon in terms of, you know, demand destruction and recession and blah, 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 you name it. Um, the big risk that I'm worried about is that, you know, we've got, Elon Musk out there calling for oil and glass, oil and gas exploration, you know, coal mining and LNG export capacity construction are probably going to be rebranded as patriotic pretty soon if this keeps up. And so what I'm actually really worried about is that I missed the multiple expansion part of the trade when everything to date, while the stocks have been great, it's been all about just the fundamentals, uh, you know, and the indices of name your commodity have been incredible. Um, And then on top of that, you know, just thinking through the market environment that we're in right now with passive becoming larger and larger with the momentum factor seemingly always working, uh, well, passive and momentum are about to pick up huge momentum factors on all these commodity, you know, energy and commodity stocks. Uh, And so, again, I, I, I feel that reducing exposure here risks missing out on that force, which basically took the COVID winners and doubled them above where they probably should have gone. Uh, and then, you know, I'll just say finally my macro bias is just that the U.S. consumer at least, and again, this is my this is my East Coast lens, so I'd love to hear from Shrub because I'm obviously biased. But I do think that U.S. consumer is in a really strong position to at least ward off some of what's coming from an inflation perspective, let's say. But, you know, consumer balance sheets are as great as they've ever been. Wage growth is really good. Um, to me, at a minimum, this pushes a recession further out to the right. That being said, I obviously wouldn't be picking up a consumer discretionary penny in front of the steamroller that's coming right now. So those are my biases, and I'll turn it to you, Shrub. Uh, thanks. And if you don't mind, uh, uh, Twebs, j- just to mention that my pinned tweet is the link to the Red Cross for Ukraine. Awesome. Um, yes, of course. So absolutely, just to mention that. And the reason why I'm putting the Red Cross is because we've been sending uh, supplies to Ukraine for the last two weeks. We char- we actually paid our own uh, drivers to take stuff there. And now they cannot cross the borders. So the Red Cross is one of the few organizations that can actually help 
uh, are people that are on the ground right now. So that's that. I'm sure everyone can afford to make a donation, whatever they feel uh, comfortable with. Um, okay, so put that aside. Uh, well, not aside. Just uh, let's just put the politics and wars and everything aside, and just try and think this clearly. Um, I actually wanted to go a bit back, Twebs, because uh, my bias right now and has been. Uh, I see Josh Young is on online as well, and uh, you know we've shared the same view. That at some point we're going to go into stagflation, and stagflation. What you need to belong is number one is energy, number two is real estate, and the last thing you want to belong is tech. And I think we've been saying this for since summer last year, uh, but the setup was very different because we were still printing. So obviously, the good thing about being long energy and commodities in a inflationary environment and a stagflationary environment that it works in both environments. So that's why it was a great trade to belong this and not short anything. So, um, and that's when uh, I sent a tweet and you sent a tweet with the double dogs, remember? And I was like the one-time CB Duck Club, which was basically a group of mining stocks that were trading at literally one, two times CB And, you know, you had a great list and you, grow, you wrote an amazing uh, substack on that. Um, so the play since the summer was to be long all these things that were printing. And I was trying to remind myself why we were long all these things. So we were long uh, coal because there were COVID bottlenecks. ESG led to no one wanting these names. And there was also a reopening that pushed demand for oil, coal, uh, et cetera. Uh, and also, the, the, just to mention, the China zero COVID policy obviously made a very big role into the whole thing. The second group of uh, commodities we were long with was the EV transition ones. Uh, so I was long copper, nickel, actually nickel in a much bigger amount than copper. Uh, and, uh, because we, since COVID, we said we're going to decarbonize the world. So we're going to spend 100 billion. Well, actually, the numbers was we need to spend one equivalent China in the next decade. So that's about 10 trillion. Uh, and just to clarify, so the, the the cost to urbanize China in 2000, 2008 was about 10 trillion. So the estimate to decarbonize uh, the world for the next 10 years is 10 trillion. So you need about one China. Uh, and then you need another China after 2030. So we were long all these EV transition metals for the decarbonization. And we'll get back to that if that's still the case. The third reason was we had low valuations versus tech. And the fourth reason was we were long certain cyclicals like the fertilizers um, because they, you know, they faced certain um, you know, unique characteristics to belong. I, I remember I sent a tweet in about Mosaic back in December. Um, thanks to Trader Pamplona if he's online. You know, thank, thanks, buddy. Um, so now where we are. So we were long all these things. Um, Meanwhile, you could see that tech was selling off slowly, slowly. And then we reached a point in December where um, the Fed pretty much pulled the plug and said, well, we're facing inflation. It's no longer transitory. We need to tighten up. We need to do QT. So from that point, remember, I put a NASDAQ short on. And that short has been working. Um, and now we're at the point where our trade has worked before Ukraine. 
So before even you, so, you know, again, I sent a tweet saying, you know, you, you should be short tech and long commodities, not because of Russia, but because of the Fed. So this, the tech sell-off would have happened with or without Russia. Let's be honest about that. So the main question I have in my no hypothesis is um, that commodities are still cheap, uh, that, that I should still, sorry, my no hypothesis is that we are now, what we were referring to six months ago, the stagflation, we are now in a stagflation and we need to be long energy, commodities, real assets, and to be short tech. And actually, the part that's bothering me right now is whether which trade is going to be the better trade, or you just say, well, why not both? I mean, I have both on. So my 40% of my portfolio is long energy and commodities, and 50% is short the NASDAQ. And I have a big cash position of 30% plus at this moment. Uh, and I've tweeted around how, how I went to that. So now, now where we are. So the biggest thing to think about, um, how do we get, how, did, how are we in a stagflation? And again, the, the EU versus US example is very, uh, very important. Um, I tweeted out my corner of the FT analysis um, yesterday for this particular reason. So the US household income is $67,000, $67,000 median. The gas consumption and the food consumption accounts for about 13% of the total before before uh, the gas and food inflation prices. So if you assume gas doubles, which it did, and food inflates by 20%, that 13% jumps to 18%. So you've kind of took a hit of about 5% on, your, on the median, income, median household's uh, spending power. Now, if you do the same thing in Europe, and I kind of... If you do the same thing in Europe, that impact is going to be more like 15 plus, maybe even 20%, because the gas prices here have gone through the roof. So the gas price in, in, in Europe has gone up 10 times. Just think about that. I have friends who make a decent living whose bill went from 200 euros a month to 1,800 euros a month for February. So you're talking about crazy stuff here. And you know, everyone assumes you can, you can afford to pay that for a few months, but if it's sustainable, it will have a pretty big impact. So the point is, how can you avoid, the to Tweb's point, you can probably avoid a outright recession in the US with a 5% hit, but in Europe with a more than 10% hit, you probably can't. I think Europe is going into a recession. And actually, if you do the same numbers on the lower income households in the US, and I have a chart down at the bottom of that tweet, the numbers are very scary because you have a 25% uh, already spent on ga gas and food, and if uh, now with current prices, that twenty five could go to you know thirty plus, uh, thirty forty percent. So then you have a humanitarian crisis in in the U.S. of all places. So, um, so when people say, and, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but you know, when people say demand destruction is not going to happen, that's absolute horseshit because you know, just find someone. Um, Find someone not, uh, you know, at the lower income level. I'm sure you know everyone knows someone or is one, and ask them how um, how the recent inflation surge has has impacted them. Because you know the guys in New York and London they don't feel it, right? 
they'll spend their five dollars for a almond latte in Starbucks. But you know, the guy on the ground uh, that makes less than X, he's gonna have he's gonna get impacted. So I think inflation and, and this is in the developed world. Now, if you go into the EM side, just imagine that everyone keeps mentioning the Arab Spring, but imagine that 90% of Turkey's and Egypt's wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine. So if those prices, and wheat is already up 50%, so imagine the impact in the emerging markets. I mean, that's going to have a massive ripple effect on the emerging markets. Um, so now, going back to how we can, uh, you know, we position around that, what I'm quite scared about, and then, and then actually just before I get there, last week, um, when the invasion happened, uh, among my uh, uh, emotional distress, I put out a tweet about the investment positioning. Um, and bear in mind, at the same time, Citigroup the, you know, recommended overweight tech, which I think is completely idiotic. So at least my emotional distress didn't lead me to be such an idiot like Citigroup. So I said, I'm maximum lump commodities. Situation is highly inflationary. You should think of Russian sanctions. And this is a key thing, Russian sanctions, not the invasion. Russian sanctions as being COVID bottlenecks part two. Yes. So this is a key part because you have to distinguish whether you are betting on a, the war ending or the sanctions ending, right? This is very important. So another angle. So if you're betting on sanctions ending, then everything is, you know, everything can collapse uh, next week. But if you, if you think that the war ends, but actually sanctions remain, well, everything can stay elevated for a long time. So that's a very, very important decision that I have made for my portfolio. The other thing is, uh, you know, ESG. I mean, why wouldn't Russian commodities be classified as conflict-free, right? I mean, Tesla doesn't buy cobalt from the DRC. Why would they buy nickel from, um, from Russia? So um, going back to on a sector basis, so energy. If you have a major oil producer uh, disappearing when everything is already tight, kind of means that you need to have some exposure, right? So this is this is the 70s. This is the chart that Josh Young has said. I've sent it, that we've both sent it like 10 times each. This is the stagflationary 70s. What does best in stagflationary 70s? Energy. You need, to, you, you need to have some sort of energy exposure in your portfolio. I actually took it down uh, foolishly, but I have kept a very decent amount uh, in it. And when I say foolishly, I sold something like an Oxy to keep something like a petrotal, although, you know, no investment recommendation uh, and all that stuff. Um, uh, but I have, I have also other US uh, names like, uh, like BSM. Uh, but for example, it shows you how Oxy traded on Friday, traded like a mem stock. So actually, <laughs> you know, you probably do need to have some pure US exposure versus uh, dabbling around uh, um, other parts of the world. So then, uh, nickel, nickel is a major, Russia is a major nickel producer. So obviously that's going to get impacted a lot. Um, aluminium, same thing. I mean, that's like stored energy, uh, fertilizers. I said, I'm long everything. All those seasonality could be against. Um, and then now we're at that point where you have to think what is cyclical structural and what is cheap and expensive. So. And are you taking a view on the war? Are you taking a view on uh, sanctions? 
And, you know, the way I phrase it to myself is if someone kills Putin tomorrow, does it also kill my portfolio? I mean, I, you know, I'd be happy if both happen at the same time. I don't care. Um, so, and then um, other key considerations that I've been thinking about. I'm just sharing, uh, sorry for having a, uh, you know, stream of consciousness here. So what did we say initially? We said initially we bought these, some of these things, I bought them for EV transition. I bought them for decarbonization. Does this still apply? That's the key question. So Elon Musk tweeting yesterday about, you know, drilling more oil. Does that mean I should get negative about EV transition, all that stuff? Well, I I actually don't think so because we are quite early on on the EV transition adoption that even with a major, okay, I mean, if the war becomes major, then we have other problems to deal with. That, I mean, I have an urge to go and buy Tesla myself after what happened. Um, So I'm going to say that my null hypothesis is that the EV transition on this point, it still continues. So I'm not going to change my EV transition hypothesis. That's the one thing. Then the second thing is, decarbonization. I think the governments are still going to throw money on this part because they need to get uh, uh, rid of Russian gas. And actually, I'm adding another dimension which gets me bullish on on uh, nickel, copper, and, uh, and tin. I think supply chains need to be rebuilt. So we basically have depended, you know, small things like neon that goes into semiconductors, 90% comes from Ukraine. I mean, no one knew that until like a few weeks ago. Actually, no one knew that since. So no one prepared for it. So uh, nickel uh, has to come. You know, you're sitting on deposits of nickel in Australia and the US and Canada. Why not develop those? Why do you get it from uh, Norilsk? So there's going to, I think there's going to be money coming in to all these commodities because the US and uh and Europe, they they realize that supply chains will have to be rebuilt, and they need to get energy independence and uh, metals security. I mean, the fact that the German Parliament hosted a special session last week, and they said two things that they haven't that they hadn't said since the Second World War. The first one was they will increase spending on defense. This is the first time, and we all cheered Germany increasing defense uh, spending, right? So this is the world we're, we're in right now. Uh, they're going to spend $100 billion. That's a lot of steel, right? Um, then the second thing they said was, we will go towards energy independence. They had never said that. In 2006, Schroeder sa- uh, signed the deal for the, for, a, for the pipeline with Gazprom for Nord Stream. And everyone was like, why are you doing this? Well, now we know why he was doing it. That's a different story. But the point is, and, and then in, the, in that same session, the opposition came up and said, we are, uh, we agree to all this and we will continue this even if we are the next government. So this is becoming a uh, country policy. So that, so that is immediately is leading to two LNG terminals. That's going to come out, uh, they're going to start getting built. Uh, you know, you're going to see more ease, I think, with certain, uh, and you're going to see a lot of money coming in the sector, I think, from a strategic perspective. Now, where where are we all panicking? I mean, we're panicking a bit because, oh my God, you know, these guys are uh, 
are going to flood the market or, you know, flood the market or it's becoming a popular thing. But actually, think about the time it takes to build a mine. I mean, it takes five to seven years. Or you look at the, you know, look at any major mine that took place. It takes five to seven years. So I think we're at the stage where we're going to just throw money at it. Uh, Friday, we saw Mosaic MOS trade like a mem stock. We saw Oxy trade like a mem stock. And it looks like we are at the point of the parabola. And again, on my tweet last week, I showed how parabolas looked, look, looked like in 0708. And it was two times of what you're seeing now. I mean, I was there. And then in 0708, um, I actually made much more money shorting the banks than being long commodities. And that's why in my mind, I'm like, am I going to make more money this time around being long commodities or short tech? Because I think that's the equivalent trade for me. Uh, and so far, I've made much more money being long commodities. Uh, and I'm, and my strategy on that is actually I'm just trimming things that I think could pull back on, on something that's outside of my control. Uh, that's why I was actually trimming a bit of the energy, trimming a bit of... Uh, uh, fertilizers because, well, maybe they're not in my control. And actually, maybe the fertilizer trim was a mistake because this could be structural for the next uh, one year. But, you know, the way I phrase it as well, and again, that was part of the stream process yesterday, uh, thinking process yesterday, the corner of the FT analysis for TIN kind of got me comfortable, validated why TIN is my largest exposure, actually. And this is how I want to think about it. So we go back to the question of demand destruction. Oil, uh, gas and food is 18 per, goes from 13% to 18% of a household's spend. You're going to see cutbacks in some areas. You know, maybe a bit here, a bit there. You know, in Europe now, they're telling people to turn down the heating and all that stuff. Now, something like tin, the tin content per smartphone is 0 0.7 grams. That value is about $0.03. So from a smartphone price is 0.003% of a smartphone's purchase price. Now, in a recession, of course, you're going to buy less phones, sure. But, you know, we are an industrializing uh, uh, economy still, and we still need more, you know, the demand for semiconductors is still going through the roof. So the demand for tin will still be there so that's how i'm thinking what i'm trimming and what i'm and, and then on the other side i have you know potassium uh, potash supply could go through the roof in a few years from what i know so that's how i'm thinking about things i'm thinking look what's structural what isn't how could i win in all cases and i think you know stuff like tin nickel makes me feel more comfortable than uh than some other things. Uh, the other thing I would just finish with is um, I, I told myself that once ESG turns positive for oil and gas, I should get out of oil and gas. Um, it's starting to happen. I think it's going to take a while to get to get that production online, but I, I think they could get that production online. Uh, in the next few years, not not immediately. So the way I'm doing it, what I so when I sold some of my energy exposure, what I actually did, I actually bought oil services. So I kept that exposure, but I found that it was more asymmetric 
to own oil services plus my core energy names that I'm not going to sell out for during this cycle. Um, okay, sorry for uh, waffling a, a lot. And Twebs, that, that's I'm I'm done uh, here. There, there was no waffling there at all. That was really helpful. And it was also the appropriate balance of how long I should speak versus how long you should speak. So very well done. Um, all right. I want to seize on something you said way towards the end there, which is, you know, I, I'll get out of these when they become ESG positive, right? And I really think that that's an important point. So the this wall of money that's about to look at, let's say uh, LNG build out. As one example, there's there's 20 examples of this, but let's just let's seize on that one just to make it specific. It's about to be patriotic to build LNG export capacity in the next couple of months, right? So to me, there is such a massive wall of money that's about to flip perspective from a lot of different industries being pariahs to being strategically important. And when you throw that on top of my point that I'm making about, oh, by the way, you're about to have really great scores on a momentum factor and a value factor for basically any energy and commodity name you look at. To me, those are two mega trends that are in the second inning, the first inning, maybe. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, look, I think that, that's why I mentioned Mosaic and uh, Oxy on Friday, because this is a market that still has a lot of money in it. And even if we're about, you know, we're talking about the Fed doing rate hikes in QT, they're still printing at the end of the day, right? We're still, we're still at zero rates in the world and printing. So, you know, having Oxy being up 15 to 17%, that shows you that there's money that's panic buying the sector. And uh, we are old enough to remember how GM, uh, GME and AMC traded. So at the end of the day, these are not crazily expensive stock. I mean, you know, Oxy is not a great, great company as you know, most of us think. Uh, think I mean, it's, it's okay, but it's not like the best oil play or whatever. But it's liquid and it's levered. So that's why people play it. Mosaic is a great company. And it's a fertilizer play, so they're using that as a mem stock as well. Well, mem stock, it could actually, it, it, it's, it's still a 20% free cash flow, right? <laughs> so, but let, let's use it. So you can actually justify those moves that they should trade not a 20% free cash flow yield. They should trade a 10% free cash flow yield, even with elevated uh, uh, commodity prices. Because we are always taught as generalists and value guys that when commodity prices go up, our equities derate, right? That, this right, is the key right. thing. Oh, they derate. And, you know, we, we had the extreme example of Arch trading at one times EBITDA. So we're all like, oh my God, you know, if Arch was trading at one times EBITDA, maybe, you know, maybe the oil stocks go from four times to two times. Now, let's take the extreme example of what happens if they become uh, green ESG companies. Yes. So let's take the example. So the extreme was rare earths, uranium and lithium. So three commodities that are actually not rare at all. And those companies are trading between 10 and 20 times EBITDA. And then you look at something like, you know, the tin stocks, only two of them, they traded like two to three times. 
And actually, those commodity prices could stay elevated. Same with nickel. I mean, the nickel stocks are trading, you know, mid-single digit. So what we are risking, if we sell out, we are risking of having that re-rate to the lithium, uranium, and rare earth multiple. That's what I'm thinking. Um, And, you know, is Arch ever going to trade like a lithium stock? No, it's never going to trade like one. But could the tin stocks do? Yeah, I think they could. Could the nickel stocks or the copper stocks do? Yeah, probably they could, right? Because if you're thinking about all the, you know, the big themes that will take us forward 10 years, you know, it's going to be, are they the same? Even if it's, look, even if it's decarbonization plus militarization, they're still going to need a lot of copper and a lot of nickel. Yeah, and a lot, actually, and a lot of steel and a lot of met coal. <laughs> so, totally, and when, that, that's I guess this is my point: is is what's the the mega trend that could take us forward with ten years? On top of decarbonization, might just be energy security, which would be totally new versus where Correct. we've been in the last decade or two. What if energy security is the mega trend? That, then that's your multiple. And by the way, coal will perform the best in, in that scenario just because it's yeah. so absurdly cheap. And like, you know, I, I, when, I, when I built the whole Arch thesis, like I was very, very cautious to basically only make it about one year of super spike profits and then nothing else other than maybe getting your normalized, uh, you know, coal, uh, margin per ton and putting a multiple on that, an absurdly low multiple on that. Everybody who has made the bull case on, let's say, a coal stock, but there's a few other sectors that look exactly the same, has done so with this logic. One year and then nothing. One year and then nothing. And so, to me, a lot of the moves so far, we look at the, I, I love putting it to the Peabody stock, for example, just because that thing's going up 10, 15% a day and it's totally justified, you know? Because it's levered, and you just pushed out a you know another couple of quarters of, of record EBITDA, and so yeah, you're going to earn the market cap in you know four, five, six quarters, and you just added a couple quarters to it. So, so to me, if energy security is a mega trend, forget about it. I mean, and it's going to take every single you know what we thought 24 months ago were shitty sectors. Uh, to having an actual multiple. And look, maybe that multiple is four times instead of one and a half. But man, that's a lot of equity movement. Yeah, and look, think about security in general. So let's let's say energy security, which was mentioned at the German parliament, as I said. Think about, you know, you add food security, you, know, you add defense, you add uh, critical metal security, and suddenly you're basically adding a whole new supply chain rebuilt so you know the the oil service companies should in theory have a good time the lng is going to get built um and you know these stocks will be making a lot of money and also look people are still not i mean i urge people to just sit down and think properly because sometimes you know you have all these uh you know i hate to say it but you know all these fund managers sitting on their ivory towers they're not really thinking big picture because they're, you know, you're stuck on your 10 screens and you don't, re- you know what I mean? I mean, we've, we've all been there. I've been there as well. You don't think about big implications. We've had the producers, we had Russia and Belarus, the producers of 20% of the world's fertilizers sanctioned. 
right? Yeah, yeah. So let's do your extreme example of the one-offs. I mean, you know, is Mosaic really a one-off now? Exactly. I put a list of I put a list of uh, I, I put a list of the sanctions for other countries, and I think that's a that's that that's actually got me to stay bullish on the whole complex. So I sent a tweet. So Iran's been sanctioned since 1979. Venezuela has been sanctioned since 2014. Forget about North Korea and Cuba, right? So you, the West does not forget, especially something like this. That's why I think being on the ground in Europe, you know, every like you hear Russian on the street and people just turn away. Like the the anti-Russian sentiment is really built up here, and we feel it, right? Um, so the sanctions are going to stay. Um, so are these stocks pricing one? I reckon they're probably pricing like one times extraordinary earnings, maybe two times, but. You know, these stocks were two times higher in 08. So can they go crazy? Yeah, I mean, everything can go crazy, right? I mean, I'm actually going back to my 08, 07 days. Um, and I remember these things going way more crazier. And this time around, we have 20% of the world's production going like dark. <laughs> so, right. So, right. Exactly. so I don't know. I mean, it's very tough. It, it's really, really tough to... Because, you know, we're not tech guys, so we're not used to parabolic moves, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's really tough to get it in our heads what's actually happening uh, on the ground. But what I can tell you from people here, the disruption that's happening is immense or in the financial sector in Europe as well, as well as the commodity space. Okay, it's time for me to shut up. And Oil God, you have your hand raised, and then we'll go to Koala after that. Thank you for that, T-Webs. And uh, <clears throat> Shrub, that was just a masterclass. I couldn't agree with you more on so many things that you were just saying. I want to add in a few more comments. With respect to Putin and, and obviously what I think is going to be happening, and I know many, uh, you know, the members of the Canadian Ore Mafia, you know, we're, we, we are going to be, energy security is not going to become the next thing. It is already the next thing. And, and if you look at these big you know, clearing houses, these big banks, whether they're Citigroup and they're telling everybody to buy the dip in tech, this, that, they've all been blindsided. None of these people have done the work. None of these people are employing people with any level of experience to connect the dots here. And the reason why energy and, and commodities so far have not moved parabolic is because largely they're all in denial. And they're going to tell you to buy the dip because this is where the indices are all, you know, their indices are all heavily weighted towards tech. And so, shrub. For disclosure, and I know Deep, thank you very much for clapping. Um, you know, I'm short some of the two largest tech shorts that I could find. And the only thing that, you know, I smile every time I hear, okay, maybe next week is the week, it's gonna bottom, it's gonna bottom. Well, you can't have both. And, you know, just semiconductors alone being in shortages is most likely gonna just screw that market, irrespective of anything else that happens. And I would be shorting any tech that had any components uh, where you must rely on basically geopolitical concerns to resolve themselves. And, and your point with respect to sanctions versus supply chains is, is so bang on. So let's say Russia takes out Putin tomorrow. There's no way 
everything just goes back to normal and they treat each other like nothing ever happened before because they got rid of the head of the snake. We are already in an issue. Libya, just within the last few days, 300, over 300,000 barrels offline. No analysts are following any of this, right? So we've already had an energy issue coming in before we even had a Ukraine-Russia situation. All Ukraine-Russia did was much like COVID, is just magnified the issue so that the common person could see it for themselves. And the issue that we all have here is the common person's invested in mutual funds and these bank-owned retail sort of product where... You know, the only reason they were able to justify these fees is because they were long Tesla, long Amazon, long all these businesses that, you know, defy absolute valuation. And a lot of those valuations are going to be rung in when, you know, we just can't even access the commodity you need to build Teslas. So Tesla has now a factory in Germany, a factory in China. Good luck. I mean, Germany and China right now, as far as I'm concerned, are on two sides of a, of a political fence, right? Germany's trying to figure out if they're with Russia and China and India and the rest of the world that's going to be all trading together, or are they going to be with the West for what you call security reasons, right? And it's very difficult. Germany has been an excellent tell to see how they've behaved over the last little while and what they've said publicly. Same with the Indians, same with lots of other nations, including China, that have not really publicly been saying too much, right? And so when you, what, what, what I love about what you said is, because we here in the West don't see something, doesn't, and we can't verify it, doesn't mean it's not actually happening behind the scenes. So I want you all to think, Vladimir Putin, let's put ourselves in his shoes, okay? Let's put, you know, we're crazy, you know, we, we like jiu-jitsu, perhaps we eat sushi, who knows, who cares, right? What is he even remotely talking about when he's speaking to political leaders of India, Iran, any of these other parts of the world that are going to grow, like China? Let's, let's think brainstorm. What are you going to sit down? You're not going to ask him about the football game. You're not going to ask him about the hockey game. You're going to ask them about what are your ambitions, what have, you, what have you been doing for your people? And they're going to say, oh, well, you know, we've been these people out of poverty. We've been building these kind of factories. We've been looking at this. We've been looking at that. Okay. What's been your biggest obstacle? Oh, it's been the U.S. dollar. Oh, it's been the U.S. influence around the world, has it? Oh, you, you're afraid that if you say something and do something, they're just going to boycott you, sanction you, and do this and do that. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a solution for you. And you know what? I'm willing to start the fight. And it's not that he's... You know, you know, this is this may not be, you know, exactly what has happened, but there is got to be some level of dots connected, which is why OPEC just sat on the hands and did absolutely nothing. And no, and now that is a spare capacity issue. But OPEC knows publicly, publicly, if they said something irrespective of what they ended up doing in terms of their actual production, they could affect the market. They said nothing. Right. So. You know, Donald Trump, whether he was the person that showed what happens when you have somebody in the administration that's uncontrollable, right? We, we you know, the, the West had this, right? Now we have this in the East and they're exercising might. So I do think stay long commodities, stay short technology, because inflation is going to come uh, when we just can't get a hold of things, right? So I think you did a great job too, Web. I'm going to pass it back to you. Thanks, man. Uh, Koala, you are up next. Thanks, Twebs. Um, look, I think if there's anything we learned in the last two years, especially the past year, with the stop, start, restart of the world, is when you shut off with a switch, a integrated, globally connected system that has been built up with fine 
with refinements and soft little version upgrades over a hundred years. Um, if you shut it off overnight, you can't just turn it back on two months later or two weeks later or two years later, simply by flicking a switch. And effectively, you've, I think I've put out there that we've North Korea-fied um, Russia. But the reality is we have base, uh, for, for all financial and commodity purposes, Russia has basically sunk into the sea. And it's going to take time, even if we decide today, to reintegrate them back in. And it seems clear China has, for now, chosen to go with the rest of the world with that approach. Now, I'm sure there's a discount they can take where they'll be happy with it. But, I mean, look, I've been Mr. Fundamentals on a lot of these commodity names, whether it's Whitehaven versus BTU, but uh, as Oil God said, and as Shrub has said, Mark, the S&D balances were already tight. And now they've just had a shock um, that the best I can compare to, it's like Brumadinho uh, for Iron Ore in uh, 2019. Um, you've just had significant percentages of multiple commodities go offline with no line of sight and no quick turn uh, spare capacity to, to come online. So almost the micro almost doesn't make doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, there are better risk rewards here or there, but this may have saved Peabody. Um, still has to put up a bunch of billions of dollars to clear its balance sheet and its legacy liabilities, but they're going to get there. Um, so down at the BMO conference, there was, a bit, there was a couple interesting observations, but one is people didn't know what to short. They just didn't know, and the pod guys were losing their minds as a result, worried about crowding, but the macro wave has come over, and here we are. The one thing, uh, oil god on tech, that um, short site capital and I were discussing, he's not on here, is that uh, because of these higher commodity prices, uh, you will see slower um, economic growth, and it's possible that the Fed can't go as hard as we all thought. So you're right where there's a hardware angle, but if there's a software angle um, and you're not going to see um, as many uh, rate hikes as we initially thought because of Russia, um, there may be a bifurcation in tech. And I'm not a tech expert, but if rates aren't going up eight times, they're going up twice or only 50 bips or 75 bips, people may sit there and make, okay, I'm now comfortable underwriting the valuations in tech again after this correction. Um, and, in terms of, interesting point. and in terms of I, how this news I, plays I, out. I absolutely, um, sorry to cut you off yet. I just want to say you're 100% right. And, and I just want to make clear, and I'm going to give it right back to you. I'm saying the investments that rely, software is actually the place to hide in tech. Right? I think Microsoft will do 10 times better, 100 million times better than a business like Peloton as an example. Sorry, back over to you. You're absolutely right. So um, I think there's a situation here where you have to be constructive. I think anything that... Um, and you saw this with the Newcastle and the, the Newcastle curve last week. Um, we're off the, and I think Twebs, you and I discussed this at dinner. Um, we're off the cost curve, um, whether it's iron ore or Newcastle or coke and coal. Why should it trade at 300, 400, or 500, or in the case of iron ore, 150 or 200? Who knows? It's the question of maximum pain and panic. Um, but in this reality, I think what will happen is if we see the same way the Chinese try to jawbone iron ore when they get when they get panicked, 
um, if we see any sense of um, peace or de-escalation or Putin stepping down uh, voluntarily or involuntarily, um, you'll see a correction. Uh, you'll see a buyer strike. Um, but that will be that will be an incredible buying opportunity in my eyes because then people are going to wake up and realize, wait, we actually can't integrate Russia, get Russia. I mean, Russia's firing people um, at all these operations because they don't know where to send their stuff. You have to reopen Russia the way you've reopened the world. It's people are going to spot price will decline and like 20, 25%. The equities will go down 2025, even though they don't reflect spot to begin with. And then everyone's going to go, oh, fuck. Um, the Russian supplies six to 12 months out. And this is also a great sweet spot because everyone's convinced that this will come and things will get like the supply will somehow China will buy it cheap or this or that. No one's actually going to invest to bring on supply because they think this is a temporary shock and a one-off. So in that context, it's the sweet spot to be an existing producer. So Ko Koala, thank you so much for that. Gun to your head, this lasts a while. By the way, I totally agree with you that sanctions aren't a light switch. <laughs> They're not just being flipped right off. It's literally impossible to do that for, for many different reasons. Gun to your head, this lasts a while. Uh, and you're in a long short seat. Give me two or three subsectors you've got to be long and two or three you have to be short. Again, just assuming that you're running a neutral book. Uh Look, depending on what the drawdown limit is, I mean, look, I, I think you have to be long. Look, I think you have to be long. Um, I think you have to be long coals because the valuations don't reflect it. I mean, I haven't run Whitehaven because the curve's moving left, right, and center, but I think for Speculator had some math out that if spot holds, and we should probably use the curve instead, but something like a Whitehaven, you're going to get multiple, you're going to get an insane dividend yield uh, next 12 months. Glencore. And forgive me, I didn't bring this up, but I think one of the most powerful things I heard last week was the BMO analyst at the group presentation asking Gary Nagel, um, given the energy crisis, would Glencore temporarily increase production to alleviate the crisis? And Gary, without missing a beat, said, no. We have wow. a Paris Align drawdown strategy, and it's the right thing for the world. We listen to the world, we hear the world, and we will draw down, we will run down our coal assets to 2050 because it's the right thing to do we're Paris aligned and the world should be Paris aligned as well. And it was maybe one of the most beautiful um, passive aggressive diplomatic ways of saying, after everything you guys have said to me for the last five years and said to us, now you want our help. So it's the Mr. Burns gift. Oh, so crawling back. eh? Um, and this is the same thing in the energy crisis, energy issues. And I think Javier's um, tweets yesterday, you saw some of the responses to that. So I think you have to be long energy. Um, so I think it's, I mean, where do you go short? That, that's actually the, the key question. And I guess on a relative basis, it's copper because Russia doesn't impact it as much. And you got QB2 and Kelevecho and Kukula phase two coming. So I think maybe copper's the relative short, but it's still got an incredible long-term story. Like you got, but you got me long everything that uh, Russia's a major supplier of. Like, you, you don't overcomplicate it. Can you just comment at the BMO conference? Uh, where are we in, you know, in, in kind of the, the fear to greed scale? Because uh, you've obviously been there before. What's What was just the general tone of the metals and mining uh, guys and girls? 
I think it's blinded a little bit by the fact that the last time everyone saw each other was two years ago. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a huge blind spot there, but um, I think the energy is people in the industry believe, but they feel their cost of capital inhibits them from from playing offense. I mean, that was Glencore's whole presentation. Vale and Glencore both set the tone on day one. Vale basically like, why don't you guys give me credit for base metals? I'm going to get it one way or the other. Glencore's whole thing was about their multiple. And I really hope Gary's presentation is one day uh, was recorded and one day it's published because he pulls up and he has, I got a, wind far I got a windmill uh, company. I got a battery maker. And I got a an, uh, and I got a very nice uh, EV manufacturer out in California, with probably the smartest guy in the world. He's my fellow South African compatriot. And why does his procurement arm me trade at four times consensus when he trades at like over ten times? What's happened in the last ten years? Um, okay, so there's a I would say there's excitement, but not everyone's in a position to. Um, take advantage of the opportunity. So there's definitely right now sort of a looking at the world saying, give us credit for the fact that we're relevant and then we'll do stuff because we have to create value for our shareholders. Can we Round assume that if Glencore is saying something like that uh, from a coal perspective that the other majors uh, you know, will, will fall in line? Who else has coal at this point? <laughs> Whitehaven. No, just kidding. Like, no one, I don't think anyone, tech's been very public. This is a light year in their Coke and Coal business, and they won't go above 26, 27. That's been in their deck for a year. Um, everyone's, this is literally a case where everyone's had to commit, and now they're going to hold to their commitment. Perfect. Thank you, Koala. Koala, can I ask you something? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead can I ask you ahead. something? Yeah. Were there a lot of generalists in the conference or was it just the usual uh, mining crowd? Yeah, you know um, where I'm going with this. <laughs> I think one of the most interesting things that I heard was that they had like tens of tens of accounts like on the Monday say, hey, can I get an invite? I don't, I don't need meetings. I just want to sit in on the presentations over the weekend. Generalists are th who they're like, I don't even know where to start here. Yeah, there you um, go. It's 06, basically. So they're at the start yeah. of doing the work, and it's like, oh, my God, I, I'd love yeah. to know how much. Because uh, just, just one more thing. Uh, so I saw the, the, the inflow data, the flow data from, um, from Merrill Lynch. Uh, materials had the biggest inflow ever a uh, week ago, uh, and it was $4 billion. So it wasn't even, you know, $4 billion inflow. You know, it's a lot, but it's nothing, nothing like a major weeks of inflow in the u.s uh, market of you know 20 billion so I, I think i don't think people are overweight the sector just just they're on not. that yeah they're not people i think are saying they're they they, they have the biggest i think shrub you had it best which is a couple weeks ago someone said um people are overweight materials but yeah they're overweight materials when it's the lowest component of the index in a decade exactly if you're overweight from three percent to four percent that doesn't mean anything to me if the index is at three percent but you're four percent and i think that's why it's important guys you know whoever here is managing their own money it's important to distinguish this that you have a real edge versus a professional manager like you know i i was 60 percent of my assets uh until uh, this week in commodities that i mean if i did that at 
at my farm, <laughs> everyone would redeem, right? <laughs> but, you'd, you'd, so, be, you'd be there for about another six weeks, and then uh, you know, I'd be you'd out. Make a lot of money, but then you'd be yeah, out. <laughs> I'd be out. It'd be a one-off, like uh, you know. The, <laughs> um, sorry, KFEP has his hand up. Uh, I, I just want to say, I would say one quick thing to your point, yeah. Shrub, which is yeah. with these inflows, it's very important to now recognize where these big flows can go. Like, for example, Freeport exactly. is probably. Um, it's trading at a massive premium and it, the premium will expand as the copper bull. And I remember I said relatively I'm less bullish copper to everything else right now, but I'm still exactly. bullish copper. Freeport, that premium can still expand because mm -hmm. it's the place. If you're a macro guy who just got started looking at the space and you say I'm bullish copper, Freeport's in the index. It can take a $50 million slug of capital in a day from you without much thinking and you don't have to worry about it. So we're not yet at that point where people can say, Freeport's way too expensive. Find me something different. Find me Ivanhoe. Find me a first quantum. I'm willing to go. And we're, not, and we're not even at the stage where they start looking at junior miners. That's the key oh. thing, right? Because 110%. Yeah, so that's why, look, I own quite a few junior miners, uh, as you do as well, I'm sure. But the, the key point here is, that's why I said the the panic buying, Oxy and Moss trading and Mosaic trading like mem stocks, it's important to me because it tells me that there's panic buying that's indiscriminate. People are like, oh my God, get me some. I mean, I've been at PM, you know, he's like, you tell your analyst, get me some uh, oil exposure. Where do you buy? Oxy. Get me some fertilizer exposure. Where do you buy? Mosaic. So that's like a spastic move, right? But they haven't reached that point, like you said, to look at what's actually in the, each segment where each one trades, and then for these things to settle, and then once they settle, they start looking at the juniors. And I'll also just say, um, as everyone knows, I'm a free agent. Um, another huge tell for how how where the capital's flowing is that market. And there definitely are some interesting things, but we are not seeing anywhere close to a frenzy where everyone says, I need materials, I need metals and mining expertise, um, who's available. We are not, we're not seeing that, which also tells me how early we are in this cycle. People don't believe this is a multi-year, multi, even a multi-quarter thing they have to be involved in. I agree. Okay, Fab, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Shrub, pleasure to speak with you. Big, big fan of your content. Thanks for everything that you all Likewise, buddy. <laughs> Everybody for free. Um, so generally, we're simpatico directionally on a lot of this stuff, but I thought I'd ask some questions on kind of the risk side to counter narrative. Um, so how do you think about the risk of um, potential global recession and what that might mean for the story? And then um, also... You know, as as we get these price spikes, you're starting to see subsidies from governments. And but if this goes into food and other things, how do you think about the political risks of whether it's taxation or, you know, depending on the industry, you're talking about nationalization of mines. So I, I get worried about, um, you know, what it means for an equity investor um, when, you know, the serious type of stuff that looks like might be coming down the pike here as far as, you know food riots and that kind of stuff that could happen. Um, and, and then 
as an extension of those two, like how do you how do you think about your management of risk relative to I mean, this is already starting to go bananas. So when you're talking about straight up parabolas, like do you, you how do you handle your position um, exposure as far as the volatility? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Um, I really enjoy uh, reading whatever you write as well. So uh, I'm a fan. Uh, and I know you've you've been through a few cycles because you know this question you asked is exactly what's on my mind as well, and I'm sure you went through the same thing in '08. Uh, hence, why that's the first question you and I asked ourselves, probably when 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 we frame this situation uh, right now. With the easy ones, the easy ones are when prices go up, resource nationalism kicks in every single time. So when you have a commodity bull market, you, as an investor in a foreign country that you don't understand the laws, you are basically going there to get screwed. So you have to be really aware. So I, I've, <laughs> I've said this story before. I'll say it again because it's worth saying it. In the last cold bull market, one of my biggest positions was basically uh, extra expropriated by a thug in Indonesia. So I lost 100% over a few days. Uh, this was back in 2011 or something. So everything was ripping and I got a zero on my call stock. So oh, similarly... So you the last two weeks. <laughs> no, no, I was long Churchill mining in 2011 in Indonesia. But no, the, but the funny part is, you know, I had guys bullish energy that were long... Uh, Gazprom and guys bullish nickel that were that were long Norilsk. So guys, look at these examples and think about that this could happen to your portfolio in any jurisdiction you are. So the way I'm doing it, since that incident, I've learned a few things and a few gray hair. You have to be diversified in your commodity names. I'm generally actually, I, 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 I don't mind taking big positions generally, but you have to be diversified in commodities specifically in energy, especially if you go into weird jurisdictions, you do risk nationalization, you do risk higher taxes and look at good countries. Like, you know, I have a few exposures in Peru, for example, and, you know, Peru has a you know, communist socialist government, whatever you want to call them. Uh, Chile was supposed to be a good jurisdiction. They suddenly came up with a crazy mining law as well. So I don't think anything is safe. And for example, I'm long Shell, and I don't think even Shell is safe. And, you know, that's an argument that in parabolas, um, you're probably better off sometimes long the commodity instead of the equity. So the guy who was long oil versus Gazprom made a fortune, uh, and the Gazprom guy got a zero. So resource nationalism, taxation, the way you deal with all these things is you need to have diversified and you need to be careful in your countries. And some countries might seem risky, and are priced like risky, that's fine. And some countries might not be priced as risky, like the Chilean ones were or the Peruvian ones were, and they do prove to be risky. So that, that's, that's the first part. The second part is when you have parabolas, I'm not, I don't think anyone is great in parabolas, but the, the only thing you can do is just follow the 20-day moving average or the 10-day moving average and just trim as you're going up. Like, I'm trimming as, as, as things are going up. I'm not buying. I'm not that kind of guy. I mean, you know, the guys that make a lot of money, like Soros, they buy from these things. I'm trimming instead. <laughs> so that's why I went from 60 to 40. 
but you know, this is my livelihood. You know, it's it's my family's money. So I go from sixty to forty. I have cash on the sidelines. There's a dip. I use I use that cash to buy the dip. Now, why do I still have forty percent of my assets in this trade, which I think is still a lot? Um, is because um, you know the, they they keep going up. That's the first thing. But two, because I wasn't I was there in '08. And I think the key difference between now and 08, and I really want to distinguish it because, again, like I said, in 08, I, was, I made much more money on the short banks um, than being long commodities. I was, you know, small long commodities versus big long commodities. Is that now you have a major supply disruption that's taking place. Um, and I have to be selective but I have selective exposures to things that could stay uh, bottlenecked or disrupted or um, or stay high. Like tin, I, you know, I keep mentioning tin and nickel as an example. But oil at twenty. So let's go back to the, the the key thing you're asking, which is what worries me as well. Oil at one twenty. Can it lead us to a recession? And I say 100% is going to lead Europe and US into recession, not because oil is at 120, because we've had oil at 120 at like 2000, whatever it was, 14 or 16. Oil at 120 by itself, we can live with. I mean, I gave the numbers before, you know, say your energy bill goes, uh, you know, from $2,500 to $5,000 a year as a household. You know, it's painful, but it's not, doesn't kill you. But when everything goes up at the same time, when your food goes up, your uh, materials go up, uh, your purchase, uh, uh, you, everything you purchase goes up, which is what's happening now, that's when you're pushing the world into a recession. And I'm 100% convinced we're going in a recession in the next few months, but like I put on my Twitter name, I think we're going in a stagflation, which is very different from 08, because in 08, we didn't have a stagflationary environment. We just had a blow up of the system. So now we could have a blow up of the system. But, so now we could have a recession, but with input costs staying high because of the bottlenecks for, due to COVID, due to Russia, due to everything else. And, and then how long is it going to take before oil, so when demand destruction for oil kicks in and when new supply from uh, the money we throw at the problem kicks in you know it could be like uh, one or two years and we could be in a very bad place by then so you know as an example extreme example i was speaking with a friend of mine who's in you know in was looking to invest in venezuela of all places in venezuela people were buying eggs uh as a store of value because it depreciates less quickly than the currency <laughs> so so it's just a crazy concept that how, how fast the money depreciates in a place like that. So I was, uh, you know, I said uh, one thing that I always remember. The only piece of research I have printed on my desk was what happened in the 1970s in the stagflationary period. And the reason why I printed that is because I knew that that environment is the absolute worst environment for an investor and for wealth preservation. It's a really, really bad environment because you're gonna get fucked, excuse the swearing, but 
you know, <laughs> consumer companies are going to get screwed. Purchase, price, purchase uh, power is going to go down the toilet. And you're still going to have uh, commodities staying up because you're not going to be able to get them from anywhere. So what, what, are things, what things are going to get hit probably from the commodity side? Probably copper gets hit first, like uh, Koala said. Also because it's, you know, there's a very strong discretionary element to it. Um, aluminium is probably going to get hit at some point because you're going to delay certain purchases. And I've been to aluminium smelters in China. I mean, you know, trust me, there's a lot of capacity. It's just the costs are very high. Um, and then you look at certain things that are less, uh, less elastic. And, uh, you know, oil uh, is less elastic than certain, you know, than, than the rest. Um, fertilizers could be less elastic. Food is the least elastic of all of them. So, and like I said, just on a sentiment basis in Europe, that's all that people talk about right now. It's high prices. By the way, the euro is down the toilet already. So we have a double whammy. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just, and also the other thing, uh, Kiveb, is we've had a discussion on commodities and no one's mentioned once the one commodity that does extremely well in stagflation. It's gold. And the reason why gold does well is because although it's a useless metal, it actually preserves value. So, you know, gold is not an inflation hedge. It actually just, it's a preservation of wealth. And that's why it does well in this, in this stagflation environment, because in an inflationary environment, copper should do way better because people want to go and spend and buy cars and do stuff. Whereas in a stagflation environment, there's no much demand for these things, but prices still go up. So you put your money in gold. Um, I hope that was helpful. I just want to distinguish the 2008 versus now, because this is what's been in my mind most of this time with my decisions, because I've, I remember clearly commodity producers getting killed in 08. Um, and this is really the one thing that you all should think when you own this, when you own anything that, you know, they could all trade like 08. And you could have even some, so, so let's just put the risks of owning commodity producers. One, you could be right on the commodity. You can still get screwed by the government, like we said. You can still get screwed by nationalizations, taxations, all that. One. And two, um, you know, if there's a recession, is your commodity that you're long really recession-proof? That's a really, really big question. Um, and then me, so you're basically, as a commodity investor, you're basically just running around a minefield. Um, you know, in 08, the sentiment was very similar, by the way. We were like, oh, my God, you know, commodity producers, we're fine on commodities because China is urbanizing and China is doing this and China is doing that. And I remember that, you know, we were all long uh, BHP Rio for those reasons. And even if you <laughs> actually BHP made a, made a hostile move to buy Rio, that's how bullish they were. So even the smartest people were super bulled up in 08, and then look what happened. Um, so it is a real risk. So the only thing that's different now versus 08, well, there's many things different, but the key thing that's different is that now we have the, one of the major commodity producers in the world that went dark. And that's why it's important to have a view uh, whether that, how long that lasts and whether that flow of commodities 
actually gets diverted. So let me tell you another risk for our theory that we haven't talked about. Say that all that nickel that uh, Norris produces, that's difficult to sell in the Western uh, world, say that all that nickel goes to uh, the Chinese uh, battery producers, then what's the difference? You just diverted the flows. How long does that take? Maybe it takes three months. Maybe it takes uh, one year. So maybe the, you know maybe there's no distraction of uh, supply. So, um, so that that's that in a nutshell. You know there is. So you know to conclude, one, it's a risky space. Two, recession risk is not high. It's almost certain for me. That's why I'm short the Nasdaq. I'm fifty percent short Nasdaq. Uh, I don't know. I don't own a single consumer discretionary company. Um, well, I own a couple of small, crappy ones. Um, and then three, um, you know, it's it's whether these supply disruptions persist re- outside of sanctions, as in. Um, as in, you know, does that flow reach China eventually? Because let, let me tell you another, you know, random story. You know, the guys have made a lot of money in commodities. Um, Onassis, you know, the shipper, you know, the shipping guy, Onassis, Fredrickson, Glencore. You know, it's, these guys, they, may, they basically found ways to get things from place A to place B. So there's always going to be people that find ways to take... Um, commodities for place A to place B. An example came on Friday. So the Russian oil, the Ural, was trading at like almost a $28, $30 discount to, uh, to Brent. It wasn't finding any buyers all week, and then suddenly Shell went and bought it. So if Shell goes and buys the Russian oil, it's not going to stop PetroChina next week to go and buy the Russian oil. So that's, the, that's me being a devil's advocate against my own bullishness, that things will eventually find their way somewhere because that's how capitalism works. And, you know, we still have capitalism around the world. And, you know, Chinese are greedy people uh, like everyone else uh, um, who's ever worked in China can attest to that. Um, so that's that. So you could have that flow uh, getting. And, and let me tell you another negative that I've been thinking about that could, uh, that's again me being against myself. What if uh, Russia ramps up their oil production because they're selling now at a discount and they need to feed all their people? Think about it. So you were getting $100 a barrel until last week and now you're getting 70 What does a socialist government do? They produce more. As long as they can, it could last a year, and then you know they can't they can't do it anymore. I don't know how much spare capacity they have. I think uh, Josh Young would have a better view, but you know, just think about that with other commodities that you know they Norris Nickel. You know, they just ramp up their production and try and get as much money as they can. This is not science fiction, by the way. If whoever studies the Soviet Union in the eighties and nineties, that's exactly what they were doing. They were overproducing in aluminium. They were overproducing in everything because they had to feed their people. So. Yeah, lots of lots of death traps. Um, the one thing I would say to conclude on this point is: one, you have to be diversified. Don't do all-in trades in any country, any currency. Look at the guys who bought Russia in size. I mean, that was a disaster. Uh, that's the first thing. Then two is when you do parabolas, you know, take profits along the way. 
keep some, always keep some because, you know, unless your thing breaks the 20 day moving average, I'd say you're probably still okay. Don't be greedy. And look, I mean, uh, the way I always do things as well, personally, is I consider a trade um, when something doubles. In, uh, so when something I own doubles, I sell, I sell down until those shares become free shares and then I just let them ride. So if, if say I, put, I bought 100 of something, it goes to 200, I'm going to sell 100 and I'm going to keep the 100 as like free shares. And then when it goes to 400, I sell more and I keep a position that I just let run. That's kind of how I, how I do it. Koala, go ahead. Um, so Shrub, I think you, um, that was a great run through of the risks. I just want to, just for the intellectual exercise, um, offer a counter thought that I've been having, which is let's assume uh, China does take um, oil and nickel at 50% discounts, um, which um, speaking to folks who are very close to the Chinese last week, they have not done that so far. Um, one of the thoughts I have is that um, if China does take um, cheap Russian material, um, the global economy is a little bit like a crypto network where if you have over 50% of it or you have critical mass, you can dominate the minority component, which we're seeing with Russia right now. Um, if you're China, you still need to export to the West um, to keep your economy growing and your country stable. If we saw um, cheap Russian material go to China and India, I would go so far as to say that the Western world, called the Atlantic Basin, is pot committed on the strategy of we'll take pain to have this, call it, world economic war, uh, where Russia is going to have to feel is going to feel pain and eventually cry uncle. Um, we're pot committed on that strategy. If you saw an evolution of call it a Russian, India, China, cheap commodities, um, second sphere, I would not be surprised to see the Western world say, well, we're going to squash this right now by um, if you're with Russia, you're not with us. And I don't think China and India take that pain. So I think there's an interesting, once you have enough buy-in, we're seeing on sanctions and on um, pressing uh, uh, someone who's kind of broken the rules. Um, it's unclear to me if China and India dare risk um, facing the same fate by aiding and abetting Russia. Look, I agree, and that's why I mentioned the Shell example because they bought a shipment on Friday. I think it was kind of too early, but it was energy related, I guess. So they said it's not it's, what we did is not uh, under sanctions. Great quarter, guys. I love your screen name, so you got to ask your question. Great quarter. You're not there. Go ahead, James. Hey, guys. Uh, just two questions. Uh, um, assuming this is going to be prolonged, just going back to Cole a little bit, um, I was trying to find some um, maybe junior names. All the... Uh, Oil Juniors in Canada uh, started ripping, ripping this week. Uh, coal ripped this week, but I'm just wondering if there's any smaller coal names. I found AHQ uh, Allegiance seemed to have uh, North American assets trading out of out of uh, Australia. 
Um, just curious if any Cole guys, T Webs, Matt, uh, if any have any that you're looking at on the smaller end. That that was yes. for Matt and Matt. Yeah, Matt, go ahead. <laughs> right. All right. So you know, traditionally in the coal markets, whenever New Elk, which is Allegiance's asset, <clears throat> pardon me, Allegiance's asset um, out west, uh, comes online, that is that has traditionally been a signal. It's time to exit at coal. Um, however, the the issue with with New Elk getting offline isn't isn't necessarily quality. It's not great. It's kind of a borderline high vol A, high vol B coal. The issue has been that it's never because they always come in at the end of the cycle. They've never been able to achieve, you know, escape velocity and, and be a meaningful contributor to the sector going forward. I mean, I have questions about you know, productivity. I have questions about rail logistics. I have questions about how much it's going to cost to get that coal, you know, either into a blend or out of the country. But uh, at, at current prices, um, it's it's hard not to not to look at them and go, well, maybe this is the cycle in which they become, you know, a more permanent member uh, of the community. Um, they also have um, their other primary asset are strip mines in, I think, northern Alabama. Um, uh, so that's, you know, uh, kind of the, the outcrops of, I uh, can't remember if it's the Mary Lee seam or one of the other ones, but um, the thing that, you, that we have to realize with, with um, you know, with those mines there, like the quality is going to be okay, it's going to be fine. Um, but the strip ratio at those surface mines is like 30 to one. And we've had all this inflation, you know, cost inflation push through, you know, on the diesel side to move that much earth costs way more than it did, uh, you know, years ago. And uh, those strip ratios, just just to give you context, um, are enormous. You know, strip ratios out west are, you know, one and a half to one, two to one, three to one in the PRB. You know, in northern app, they're 20 to one. Um, you know, in central app, they're still about 15 to 17 to one or Last I checked, which has been admittedly a while ago, but um, those are those are very high cost mines. Um, you know, New Elk, New Elk though, uh, it, it might play. And you know, I built a built a model for uh, for it not too long ago, and have been scratching my head. And I got some pushback, uh, but that was like that was in beginning of January. So I I, I think I think there's a chance that uh, that they might that they might actually play here. Uh, so anyway, this thought specifically on that one. I mean, it's. I'm trying to think if there are other ones that we got to look at. You know, I, I've, I've been back and forth on Corsa a lot, um, which is junior, you know, medical play in, in Pennsylvania. I mean, you know, the problem with, with Corsa is that they broker all of their export coal. So the upside to um, uh, the upside to that, that could be captured um, is, is just pretty minimal. Now, if this cycle lasts through the end of the year, I think we're, I think it's a different story. I think that one will fly, but Right now, um, I, I think there are just too many questions from a geopolitical nature to like really project forward. I mean, because you know most most coal companies are going to be contracted by now because if if and only if because labor is so hard to organize. Hope that makes some sense. I guess the only thing that I would add to the expert view there from from somebody who's definitely not an expert is that the risk with some of these is that there's so much idiosyncratic risk. And it's not like with coal stocks that the quality trades at anything, uh, you know, any sort of valuation where you can't make a ton of money in a bull market, right? So, you know, if you have it, it, sometimes in different sectors, right, the, the high quality is so much more expensive than the low quality um, that, you know, look, in a, in a bull market, you're going to make multiples on the lower quality stuff. 
But I think what you risk with taking some of the idiosyncratic risk of, of, of some of these allegiances and courses of the world is, yeah, if everything goes right, maybe you make a little bit more than you would have made on Peabody or Whitehaven or that sort of thing. Um, but why even play that game when Whitehaven is going to earn all their market cap and cash in the next six quarters, I, I guess would be my uninformed view. No, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, the the other sort of question that, that I have and, you know, over the past week I've I mean, I was, I, I, I was, I, I had worked on Russian, on the Russian coal service before a long time ago, um, you know, when I was with McKenzie, but I haven't really dug in deeply until recently. Um, and, you know, I talked to, I mean, I probably talked to every small coal broker and, uh, you know, anyone who's, anyone who's producing that isn't publicly traded. And then, and then a few who are over the past week, just trying to go down the rabbit hole on who contracted what, what tons where. Um, and the, the, the weird one that I keep coming back to, um, is, I mean, I, I tweeted out earlier that Russia's, Russia's coal exports, at least on a quarter year on year basis, Q1 relative to Q1 are, are on pace to be down 25%. And I can't, can't imagine that's not going to, to increase. Right. So the issue it is not really production. Like I pulled up Elga's daily production and Elga, that of where it was, uh, a year ago. So they're producing, they're just not to pour. Um, you know, what that means is they're, they're rail constrained because rail is, is dedicated to getting, you know, supplying the, the army. So, and, you know, when I started digging into the mix of exports, uh, coal exports that Russia had, the one that stuck out to me was anthracite. Um, they export about 10 million tons of anthracite coal, give or take like plus one, minus one, whatever. Um, and a lot of that uh, comes, the Donbass region where we're having this this uh, uh, conflict. Uh, Donbass, Kuzbass, uh, about about a third of it comes from Siberia, and then uh, and then Mechel has the Yuzhny Kuzbass operation, which is which is still nearby. But again, so like it, they, some of those at least are in an area it's twenty five percent of production where there is conflict. Uh, so you know they're not producing what what they were prior to the conflict, and then even if they were. Uh, you know, getting rail to get it to go to port is going to be is going to be constrained, and then you realize that there is there's no real replacement for anthracite at all. Uh, is you know, one one point five to two million tons a year or something like that. I haven't haven't looked at that in years. Um, and you know, first of all, the, the the people who do have anthracite for sale are going to make a mint this year just because there's no other tons, but. The, the question that it's made me ask, and this, this feeds back into sort of everything that, uh, that Shrub and Koala and Twebs have been, have been talking about, um, you know, anthracite uh, also is, is used in the pulverized coal injection market, right? So it, it, it sells into PCI. And PCI prices are influenced by thermal coal prices, right? So if thermal coal prices go up, you know, they went up to 400, 410. Well, PCI prices were still down at 375. That difference has got to re-rate up, right? But if there's if there's no anthracite and PCI prices are going to be constrained, then PCI prices are going to start to push thermal because thermal's trying to get tons. PCI prices are trying to get tons, and at the same time, uh, a little bit of PCI also competes with uh, or draws some you know U.S. thermal tons into the market. So there's a potential for lower quality high vol B coals to uh, to be sucked out given these uh, given these prices or or you know just increasing, uh, you know, hours as best as they can. But we have this like, you know, inflationary spiral that is at least potentially there 
you know, in, in the coal markets specifically, that could knock over into gas. And then, um, you know, <clears throat> and then the, uh, I'll, I'll hit stop on coal right there. But it also made me think I'm working uh, with a helium client at the moment, right? And helium was short uh, because the Amur plant, uh, gas problems, Amur plant caught on fire in January. Well, now, uh, now we have, well, is gas actually going to be able to, uh, to, to get any out into the market at all? Uh, and helium is really important for semiconductor manufacturing as well, right? Uh, because you need inert environments to, you know, for those lasers to operate. So we have, uh, you know, neon, uh, which is important for the lasers themselves, uh, constrained it's 70, 90% of the market. I've heard varying, ex, uh, you know, uh, estimates. Uh, helium, which is, you know, now we're in shortage 4.0, which the, the industry consultants, the industrial gas guys are saying, um, you know, does that in turn create a some effective demand destruction for IC uh, integrated circuit production? And does that have a knock on effect on tin uh, sometime in the next like six months? Like these are the sorts of things like when, when I dig into one little rabbit hole, it leads me to five other questions in, in, in commodity regions in which I don't have a whole lot of experience. So with that, with that fever dream out of the way, I'm going to just kind of throw it back to everyone. I'm really interested to hear comments on, on those things in particular. Thanks guys. Yeah, I don't have any comment other than, you know, when it's, when it's this early and such a meteoric change to the world, uh, you don't have it all figured out yet. I think if COVID, taught us anything it's that you know you just basically have to work as hard as you can for the next couple of months to figure all this shit out dorian you have your hand raised yeah thanks tweets uh first of all i just got to say you know i got some of my favorite speakers on here it's just such a pleasure uh hearing your voices and taking your thoughts and matt you just actually you know touched on and answered one of the questions i was going to ask which is you know when it comes to uh you know coal substitution and, and grades similar to oil, like how does that affect that? You kind of just touched on all that. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> you, you got, everything is, is linked to everything and, and you guys are asking all the right questions. And these are the same questions I asked myself and, you know, and Matt, you just touched on, you know, whether it's helium and then whether, you know, the 10, you know, the second, third order effects. And yeah, I, I, I as I said, I'm asking these same questions to myself that, uh, that you're asking. So at least I'm not, I, I'm in good company from that perspective. Um, and by the way, Matt, thanks for the uh, for the uh, the Twitter discussion on Corsicola, what two three weeks ago that we had, because um, you know, <laughs> it is just starting to rip. Um, so I guess to answer James' question very quickly on um, on some of the junior guys, and and I agree by the way with with Tweeds one hundred percent with respect to you don't have to go looking so far down the food chain um, when you know the main guys are going to actually you know have such tremendous upside. But if you are looking at, uh, at a Canadian Junior one, just as, a, as an offhand, um, and I see Josh is in the audience now, so I know he's talked about Journey and Razor. One, uh, and I think those are great, but one I'll throw out there that uh, I don't know if it's been spoken of quite so much is Saturn Oil. Um, unfortunately, they, they, are, they have a, a, a very unattractive hedge book um, because of their acquisition, they were forced to do that. But they have a lot of barrels that are coming that... Uh, that haven't been talked about that is going to come to the market. That's going to actually really help that situation. Um, so I think they're well positioned. I think they've um, their share price hasn't risen and simply because they did a, they just did a very small acquisition and, and they took on a lot of um, uh, they didn't need to, but they actually did a raise. And uh, I think the market has reacted negatively to that um, for good reasons. 
but in in speaking with them, I think that uh, I think they know that going forward, any any future acquisitions that they might be looking at are likely to come from cash flow versus versus raises. And I think there's a stream of good news that's that's going to start hitting the market in the next few weeks. So just want to look at again, no no uh, no recommendation as far as uh, what to do, but just one that hasn't really been talked about a lot. Go ahead, second second hand. Uh, sec, sorry, second leg down, liquidity provider. That's a good screen name as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, guys. I, I appreciate for taking my question. And uh, I want to thank you for having the space and uh, providing such a valuable education for the, you know, for, for the community. Um, just kind of like general uh, macro question and general specific sector question that I have, I have a certain interest in. So I, I was listening to Alex Gurevich, if you know him, he's a very good uh, macro guy, uh, macro trader, hedge fund manager. And he's basically theme is like Fed is really can't really do anything against this type of tape where we have a supply side uh, inflationary pressure driven by commodities. They may hike once as a symbolic, twice, etc. Maybe do some runoff, but they cannot. They don't really have tools to fight this. So it's safe to assume that we are not going to see super aggressive. Uh, rate hike cycle where you know basically will kill the low end consumer and makes uh, gas or wheat or bread is less affordable than it is. So so it's kind of safe to assume that fat is probably on hold here in relative terms. So uh, with that said, well, it, definitely we probably will get a recession in some shape or form if we're already not in one. Uh, like certain things probably should hold relatively well, like FANG, where they have a lot of pricing power, they have a monopoly, like Google's, Microsoft, etc. Uh, certain things, like you already mentioned, like Peloton and shit calls get probably uh, hammered even further. Uh, a question that I have about what do you guys feel about semiconductor sector? How will it perform in this environment? Uh, because I, I feel like there's still definitely a big structural demand for semi-everything, especially in this whole crazy remilitarization uh, euphoria that we're going through. But there's definitely certainly like some constraint on certain resources like Neon, and uh, they semis do have some inputs, like raw material input. Probably it's not as big component as... Uh, you know, like your industrial place. So what what is your general feel on how the semiconductors will perform in this space? And thanks again for taking my question. I'll, I'll actually jump in on that one because my background was actually tech um, before I uh, uh, converted to commodities, you know, over two years ago. But um, so the tech industry and semiconductor industry, as you just touched on, the, the input cost for them when it comes to whether it's neon or whether it's tin or, or, or whatever, you know, raw material input you're talking about is, is literally pennies, if that, on the dollar relative to the revenue. So they will find a way, as long as it's physically in the world somewhere, they will find a way to get it. And from, a, from an electronic standpoint, I mean, we're not going backwards with respect to, you know, 5G is just coming online. So it's going to be, you know, a, an, another step function of actual demand. So it will come online. They will find a way to, um, to produce it. That said, um, the way I play tech, and I've said this on a few different Twitter spaces uh, you know, for a while now, but the way I play tech is through tin. And, and simply that's because 
tin is solder. And, you know, solder is literally the glue that holds all the electronic components together when you need to place them down onto the uh, print circuit board or, or bare board, whatever board you want to talk about. So it's a lot easier for me to, uh, to be comfortable in the tin uh, versus trying to pick out which semiconductor manufacturer or, or knock on, you know, which, which OEM is going to actually do better or not in this environment. I, I, second, I second that, uh, but I guess you knew the answer for me anyway. I just think it's. <laughs> it, it, it just, it's just so hard to. It's just so hard to go from uh, Taiwan and semiconductor to tin, you know, mentally. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I own one semiconductor company that's uh, MX uh, Magnet Chip. It's super cheap, but that's a different story. I'm playing it like Dorian uh, through tin. Look. There's no investment recommendation. I've I've have ten percent of my portfolio in tin for I don't know how long. It's just really obvious when you have something trading at two three times EBITDA. Uh, I mean, I, I'll just run very quickly again on the case. I mean, I'm tired of saying the case, but it's really simple. Five um, G enables you to have the Internet of Things. Dorian knows more about it than I do, but you connect everything. Everything needs semiconductors. Demand goes through the roof. Uh, for semiconductors, the cost, uh, I, as I said earlier, the cost of tin in a phone is about three cents. So it really doesn't move the needle. Uh, you can use as much tin. You're never going to feel the tin price going up, impacting your, your demand. Uh, and then, again, on a very simple, very, very simple case, I'm buying things at two, three times EBITDA when lithium and uranium stocks are at 10 to 20 times. So you know what? From all the things that I own, I actually don't look at my tin stocks performance. Uh, I email people once in a while, uh, you know, just wake me up when tin hits 50,000. It kind of did already. So I'm just going to tell them to wake me up when it hits 100,000 now. Okay, so this is a very, since this is a serious space and we only talk about serious things here, I've just shared Matt Warder's original music uh, extravaganza on on tin and so if anybody would like to to view matt's matt's soothing hey. soothing voice it is it's a pin tweet at this point <laughs> hey. matt matt, matt matt is the renaissance man he's good at everything uh we, we try so credit credit there to the great uh, uh to the great singer songwriter and fellow west virginia native bill withers uh, for uh, for ain't no sunshine when she's gone and uh, Edark, I don't know if Edark is on here, but Edark wrote those lyrics, so I'm I'm merely the vessel uh, through which these are expressed. Just uh, so. I'll just say it: ain't no iPhone when tin's gone. And now, <laughs> since since we've outed ourselves as a bunch of jokers, uh, Bill has a really serious question to ask. Got <laughs> Wabafo, you're up. Oh, thank you. Um, this is a, a, an amazing um, spaces, and um, I, I really wanted to, first of all, just to thank Shrubbery Speculation Capital for just kind of brilliant and insightful tour of sort of the macro environment right now. I really learned a lot from it. Um, the one, I guess the one issue I have is, um, and maybe I wanted to kind of ask you about it, I, I don't view the kind of macro environment right now as stagflationary. Um, I actually think it could lead into a very severe deflationary environment. Um, and I just kind of wanted to compare and contrast kind of the 70s, which I think folks are pointing to, and it superficially looks similar to today, but I, I think has important differences. 
and and it's really not about supply and demand because I, I really can't talk to supply and demand for commodities. I'm not the expert on that, um, so I defer. But in the 70s, um, what really triggered kind of oil price rise was that the U.S. dollar at that point, in effect, you could argue, wasn't really the reserve currency because it was pegged to gold at $35 an ounce or whatever the peg was. So in effect, the reserve currency for the world at the time was gold. The U.S. dollar was pegged to it. And then every other country in turn pegged either a hard peg or a soft peg to the dollar. Um, so in effect, when, when, when the 70s started um, and the inflation started, it was really because the U.S. unpegged for the world, um, kind of that, uh, that peg. And what really, I, you know, I perceive that did, what it really did was, you know, the inflationary pressures were building, um, but you had sort of a hard peg. So it kept everything bottled up for a decade or more. And then when that pressure valve was released with the unpegging, um, that was sort of releasing inflationary pressures that had been building up for a long time. And it really unsettled kind of uh, pricing after that for key commodities. Um, so it, it wasn't it wasn't because it was a supply issue with oil. It, there was plenty of oil. It was because, you know, if you're a Middle Eastern country and you for a long time had been used to seeing the dollar and gold at the same level and you were selling your barrels at, you know, whatever price you were getting in the teens. And now suddenly, you know, gold was no longer thirty five dollars an ounce. It was seventy dollars an ounce. In effect, what you were facing was in real terms the value of what you were exporting had been devalued and you weren't going to stand for it. So you put a price increase in place to basically keep your purchasing power the same. Um, and then the effect of that really was, you know, with the gas lines in the, in the U.S. was really because the response to that by you know, the U.S. and other countries was price controls and, and price controls lead to shortages. And that's really kind of the difference. I, I don't see the environment today as being similar. Uh, I, I think today it's, it, it really is maybe perhaps supply challenges, you know, probably compounded by the demand shock of COVID. Um, so I don't see it as um, kind of the same underlying um, macro forces in play. You know, in this case, you know, I would argue that it's more the demand shock and the supply challenges that have come out of that and that are now being exacerbated by, you know, wedges that are being placed into global trade, either because of sanctions uh, or because of other factors, and I and I think those are not necessarily inflationary. I think they'll, if they if they're prolonged, and they and you know who knows whether they will be or not. But if if you know shrubbery, you're correct about there's going to be kind of long term sanctions in place, and world trade gets disrupted. I think that's deflationary. I don't think that's inflationary uh, because you know the impact of that will be global GDP will start to see the effects of all of these wedges that are being placed in, in trade. Um, so I guess my point is, I, I, don't, I don't think this is the 1970s and stagflation, even though we're seeing high CPI prints. I think the CPI prints are, you know, demand was compressed during the pandemic. Um, it led to all kinds of disruptions to different supply chains, whether they're commodity supply chains or manufacturing supply chains. And I think the effects of that are still not worn off. And now they're about to be compounded by, you know, unfortunately, another macro shock. Um, and, you know, again, I don't know that that's the right prediction, but I'm just countering sort of what I view as people sort of say, oh, I've seen this playbook before. This is the 1970s. And I would argue, no, this might be more closer to the 1930s, where 
trade wedges were starting to be put around, you know, up around the world and global GDP started to get affected. And if that's true, um, that's going to lead to more deflationary shock, I think. And that's why I love having these spaces because we can have smart guys uh, giving us a different point of view because, you know, I, I view my job as I'm not dogmatic. I, I change my opinion very easily. Uh, and so, Bill, thank you very much for that. I, I really, you know, I really appreciate it. And you, you have a point uh, that is really worth addressing because, like I said, you know, I have my own money on the line. I, I don't like being dogmatic. I like to make money. So let, let me tell you what my old boss uh, used to say. Um, he said something that is really important. He said, every crisis is different. So I always thought the next crisis from 08 is not going to look like 08. It's going to look more like, you know, something else. It could be like a hyperinflation. Who knows, right? But the reason why I related to the 70s it's because it makes, I, I like studying history and it makes me feel comfortable to know at least how certain things would look like. Um, so similar to the, you know, the 70s were very, very different because obviously you, lo you lost the, the gold peg, right? Um, so that was the most inflationary thing that happened. It was more inflationary than QT, right? Than QE. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> Shrubbery, I would actually just say it. I, I would say it was a devaluation of the dollar. It was no different Correct. than, let's say, like Hong Kong, let's say Hong Kong pegs to the US dollar today, right? Wherever it is at 770 or whatever, right? It, it was the equivalent of Hong Kong saying, you know what, we're unpegging to the US dollar, right? That's what the US did in 1971. It unpegged. And you know, as well as I do as a, as a student, sort of, of, you know, various countries who unpeg, what happens to those countries when they unpeg? They unleash inflation. Correct. Right. That's what happened in the 70s. And in fact, I would say it had been pent up. And, and then after that, what you saw in the 70s was almost immediately after the U.S. unpegged gold, what happened? The long term bond yield started to rise and it never really stopped rising. What's happening today? It's not rising. In fact, I would even say the thing to watch is the fiscal budget of the United States right now, because what people aren't perceiving. And again, I think it's because everybody's got their eye on the Fed. And I think that's the wrong that's the wrong place to look. I'm watching the fiscal position of the United States, and it's going to shock people, but the U.S. is rapidly shifting from a huge deficit into almost a balanced budget. Like January came in balanced, right? Tax receipts are booming. And we're heading into two very big months for the U.S. in terms of tax receipts, March, April, and even actually to some degree June because of quarterly. I wouldn't be surprised if the deficit uh, is almost zero, which is, in my view, very deflationary because that leads to a very strong U.S. dollar. And, and I think that's the thing to watch right. as this goes for, uh, further. Uh, no, this is absolutely correct. And I actually rem remember I sent you that chart of uh, uh, government transfers and benefits. Right. Um, so that was a great chart. I'll just describe it to people here. So basically it shows uh, it's a chart by Hedgeye. Um, they've done a very good job on this. Uh, not to promote uh, Hedgei or anyone at this point. Um, so basically, it shows the benefits that people got uh, month uh, every month. And March 21st was the highest month of benefits paid out in the U.S. Um, so it was... That was a big uh, stimmy check. It was a big stimmy check, exactly. It was a $1,400 check. So basically, yep. putting everything aside, Russia, all this stuff aside, 
it's actually being worth short the market as in you're playing deflation or maybe it doesn't work, I don't know. But because you have a year-on-year comp negative on benefits, right? Right, absolutely. So, so this is negative by itself. So what I'm saying is this is deflationary. I 100% agree. So you have the benefits are running off both in the U.S. and in Europe, right? Same thing. So you have that deflationary, benef- uh, deflationary impact. And then on the other side, you have high commodity prices hitting the consumer at the same time. So going back to my corner of the FT analysis, uh, you know, you lost, not only you lost, you lost your stimmy, you also lost purchasing power from high commodity prices, which is, you know, by itself is, is deflationary in some way, right? For your purchase of certain things. But what you perceive but you, what you perceive as the price index is actually higher. So that's why I'm saying I perceive it as a stagflationary environment from the perspective of the consumer. And look, sometimes it's a bit of semantics, right? At the end of the day, you know, I'm investing based on a narrative as well. So maybe this is the narrative that makes me feel comfortable and maybe it's not really what it is, right? Well, well can, I, can I maybe offer you a, a model? Like I, I view, for, for commodities that are, that are denominated U.S. dollars. I always think of it as you got to decompose it in its component parts, right? And, and so you have to sort of understand what's happening to both components. And so there's like oil, right? Oil is a supply and demand for oil. How much supply is there? How much demand is there? But then oil being denominated in the U.S. dollar also has a component, which is what's the supply of U.S. dollars and what's the demand for U.S. dollars, right? Right. Because it's a combination of both those factors. And, and I, I can't speak to the oil component. I'm not an expert in that area. So I, again, I will defer happily to more experts in that area. But I do think what is happening to the US dollar is demand is rising, right? For one, because of the safety trade, you know, as, as and the sanctions, everybody's going into the US dollar. So you're seeing gold go up. It's, it's the classic risk off trade, right? Gold is up, treasuries are down, and the US dollar is up. But I think that's going to get even worse. I think the demand for the US dollar is going to become even more because the sanctions... Like the a lot of the the banking no, sanctions I, haven't even hit. I yet, agree, hundred percent. Right? They're hitting, and look. But I also think. The, yeah. I, I think, but, but I'll just finish my point. I think the supply of U.S. dollar and U.S. Do, U.S. dollar assets isn't going to be enough. Mm. Look, let me t- let me tell you from my perspective, and maybe what you perceive, what I perceive as stagflation, maybe you perceive as something else, because I'm I'm euro based. Right, so I'm I live in the sec in the largest economic union uh, in the world. The EU is the largest economic union entity in the world. You know how many euros I have as a percentage of my net worth? Like liquid assets, less than five percent. Why? Right. I, let me guess. You're in the U.S. dollar. Of course. Of course. But most people aren't. Most people are in euros and they just watch their currency devalue from like 122 before COVID to like 108, 109. And it's going to go to one. So think about the impact on those people that are fully euros, which, by the way, is like most people in the EU, because you're talking about a major economy. Interesting. 
Anyway, I, I don't want to. I, I sort of. I just want. No, no. You know what? Point. No, it, it's really, really important. I, I appreciate it because look, once you get the currency right, sometimes you get everything else right. So it's a really, really important point. But again, I think because when I started this discussion, it was in my mind: should I be? What's the best trade? Should I be long commodities, commodity producers, and commodities, or should I be short tech, or both? This is what what I'm trying to answer. Uh, and you've helped a lot on this on the point because the short tech and consumer discretionary, it's kind of obvious when you have a year on year negative comp anyway, it doesn't matter what Russia does. <laughs> right. 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 Anyway, I, uh, again, I appreciate it. I, I, I really enjoy kind of your, your view of the. Thanks Bill. Thanks for the comment. Thanks a lot. Thank Bill. We appreciate that. Um, MG, you have your hand raised. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, calling me. Um, no, I appreciate the spaces very much. I just want to kind of throw in a couple of points for the deflation side. Um, I apologize for my hoarse voice right now, but um, you know, I think that the one dip major difference from the '70s uh, to now is the outrageous amount of debt that we have currently. Mm -hmm. um, the United States has about twenty nine to thirty trillion dollars of debt, and so. If there was a monetary type of inflation uh, that was sustained, you know, they don't really have the tools to sort of deal with it without causing a severe deflationary type of re recession. I agree with, um, you know, all the previous speakers about um, commodity price increase, and that's kind of where my book, my own portfolio is sort of, um, you know, uh, very long commodities and natural resources. Um However, I, I do think that the, the big question is, is whether or not those input costs are going to be, um, which are, you know, there is inflation in the sense that there's increased in, in input costs across the board everywhere. The question is, can people kind of pass that on to the end consumer? And I'm actually really doubtful about that. Um, we'll get that data in about six months or so, but that's, that's the really interesting question. And I think that the Fed is, is trapped right now. And you know, given the fact that they, there's such high amount of debt that exists, I think if they you know start raising rates in an attempt to you know stop this inflation, uh, given the fact that you guys have so eloquently articulated that, that it really has to do with supply demand dynamics that are independent of monetary policy, um, they will fail, and all they will do is severely punish uh, the average consumer who uh, still has uh, a mortgage or rent. And that is pegged off what the 10-year rate is going to be, and that's going to be pegged off where the Fed fund is. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly worried about that, and that, that will immediately kind of come back to bite people. That's all I wanted to say, but um, thank you guys for having the spaces, and I'll step down now. George, go ahead. Hey, thanks. I've only been in for a few minutes. I'll just be very brief. Um, so what's happened, this tragedy that's happened in the Ukraine, it's it's horrible. I, I, I used the word distraction, and I was, was taken out of context the other day, but it's a distraction. I only mean in the sense that, you know, as we've been talking for months, there were reasons to be concerned about markets, period. And in my humble opinion, um, this is just sort of accelerated what was already in process. 
you know, the oil prices are going up, as we all know. We've been in many rooms together. For good reasons to been bullish on energy and continue to be bullish on energy, having nothing to do with Russia and the Ukraine. This is just going to make that argument even stronger. But aside from that, going, you know, and we were talking about in the space yesterday and a few days ago, and Michael Cantor, it's, I don't know if he's in the room, but we should really get him in here because he's smarter than all of us put together. You know, he was making the case that we're going to have an economic slowdown, if not an outright recession. And that alone was reasons for being cautious in the market. You guys have probably heard me talk a lot in recent months about how equities really represented return-free risk. Return-free mm. risk. So there are reasons enough to be bearish already before. And all that's happened is this, this is poor gasoline on the fire, no pun intended. And I only caught the tail end of what Shrub was saying. I gather the question was, like, you know, rotation-wise within the market, you know, what does the market do and, and, and what sectors to be in and not to be in? And I'm a, I, I really am a huge fan of Michael K., but you guys have heard my nonsense for months now. Um, all the crazy stuff that was dependent on excess liquidity was getting destroyed, is going to continue to get destroyed because the Fed can't really print more. Now the question about, well, we've got oil prices going up, food prices going up. It was all happening before the Ukraine, but now it's even worse. This is just yet another supply shock, which will bring higher prices. And prices will go up until you get to the point where it brings on a recession. So you've heard me say many times, and just looking at history, not because I'm smart. Sometimes I question how smart I am. Um, you know, the way it usually works is oil prices keep going up and up and up. And then oil prices, in fact, rising oil prices are the precipitant for the recession. Well, now in this case, we've got not just energy, but all this other stuff going up. So, you know, if it was just about the Ukraine, just about oil, then why are consumer discretionary stocks acting so badly? Why are housing stocks acting so badly? That's even with interest rates coming down. Why are the financials been acting so badly? This has gone from just, you know, our favorite trade, which was to be long energy and short Kathy Woods to something which is far more widespread. And, you know, some people are thinking, well, and, and Michael Kay was making the point that, you know, it really is now some of the other sectors. It's not so much the crazy Kathy Woodstock, so he hates them still that are going to get hit. Um, you know, energy, to my way of thinking, was the only thing on the, on the, on the board. Maybe some, some metal stocks over commodities places where you could own. Everything else is off limits. And now I think we've just opened the way to just acceleration of what's happening. I'll stop in five seconds. So, you know, either whether we get in a recession or not, odds are going up every day. Uh, I'm talking about in the U.S. But in Europe already, you see what's happening in the markets there because they're much more securely oriented and, and, and closer to Ukraine and everything. So either you're going to get, you know, if we don't get a recession, and so far the data in the U.S. has been pretty good, to be fair, because I've told you guys a lot. I keep doing the Ed Hyman stuff if you want to answer some questions about that. If we don't get a recession, oil prices are going to go up and up and up till we get to the breaking point. If we do get a recession, the earnings are going to fall apart. Revisions are already rolled over. So the point of it is, and I'll stop, in my view, the market is screwed either way. Cor so, correct. Sorry to run on so long. Sorry. Thanks, George. I, I agree because, you know, the, the, the question we initially started with was, we are bullish equities, we're bearish tech. So I, I actually asked, what's the best trade? Stay long equities in mining or short tech or both? And, you know, I'm, I'm convinced on the short 
check still. I'm like 100% convinced still for all the reasons you mentioned. And, you know, we went through uh, the last uh, couple of hours. We're just actually debating about whether to stay long the commodities and, and the energy. And I think the conclusion so far is, well, you need to have some exposure just in case um, we're in a stagflationary inflationary environment. You need to have some protection and also that these sanctions could drag for years like uh, Iran and, and uh uh, and Venezuela, in which case, you know, some commodities that are impacted by Russia are going to just stay bid up until, like you said, until there's demand destruction. So, look, you've been through a few uh, sh uh, supply shock cycles uh, yourself as well, right? So how long do they stay up is the question. In Shrub, I think the problem is, you know, I, I always, you guys keep hearing me say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm, I'm old enough and secure enough to say I don't know, okay? We're dealing now with a geopolitical problem on top of all the other houses we had. Mm. And anyone who thinks that it has is going to play out a fool or a liar. But, you know, everyone has exactly. everyone has an opinion. What's the saying goes? Opinions are like noses. Everyone has one. Or the more vulgar version of that is opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. All right. And like we said yesterday in the room, I don't think you were in there yesterday. You know, I didn't want to talk geopolitics. Right, I mean, we can go on, on, on Twitter spaces. There's five runs rooming, running rooms running 24 hours a day. On everyone's got their fucking opinion about. And that's people. why at some point, yeah, Let's exactly. Be real. That's why at some point I said, if your portfolio depends, if your portfolio will get killed if someone kills Putin, then you shouldn't have that portfolio. If it makes sense, like you shouldn't bet your portfolio on a war outcome or something along those lines. Yep. If I drop off, I'm going to jump right back on my phone. No worries. Fire, but, you know, but no, yeah. completely, completely. But no, but completely right here, right now. Like, who knows? I mean, God forbid. If Putin was taken out tomorrow or if there was a ceasefire, you know, as someone said the other day, Mark could be up 5,000 okay. points. It won't, it won't last. Correct. It won't yeah. last. But, that's, but, but that would be the need. Yeah. Effect. And if you're short uh, tech and long energy, I mean, you're going to be down 10% on that day. Uh, in size, yeah, totally. I, I agree. That's totally, why. That's totally, why I totally. said, look, I, so, I like. I'm overweight stuff that I believed in before and after. So that I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, and I'm short stuff that I hated before and I'm gonna hate after. And I think it's not different. You know, yeah. And you need to have a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah I don't, I, you need to have a lot of cash. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you know, you and I think completely right. I mean, the problem is if you hadn't been paid so much in the last few weeks on this trade. You wouldn't be having this conversation. The problem Correct. is your portfolio. Your portfolio is overpaid. So, so that's why you know already. Already, let's be blunt about this. Yeah. A few weeks ago, I was telling people I'd start taking some energy off the table because I thought it was too much. I never thought this was going to happen. But which is why I think it argues that the last point made is the best point, which is it argues for having some cash because you don't want to be on your back. But let's just say for the sake of the argument, okay, so something good happens. That Putin gets taken out, or there's a there's a there's a truce, or whatever. And and and, and, and as we said, the scenario lose ten percent in one day. Who knows? Could be twenty percent in one day, right? What you want is to be in a position where you have firepower to use that to your advantage to buy into that. And if you're max long in that position right now, you won't you won't have that balance sheet. So you got to be careful. The, so I guess the point is the tactical right now. The tactical answer is maybe not the same as strategic answer. And in the short run, anything can happen. And as I've said once, I'll say it again, markets are good with pricing risk. They're not good with pricing uncertainty. Mm. And, boy, do we have and boy, do we have uncertainty right now. And actually, just a, uh, just a, 
again, I mean, I hate repeating lessons, but I think they're very important lessons. I tweeted once, the best hedge is cash. The best hedge in a bear market is cash. I've done this before many times. You will get fucked if you sell puts at the lows. You will get fucked if you short at the lows. The best hedge is cash. And I think, George, you said it very nicely that I remember cash is not a four. It is a four-letter word. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It is. Exactly. Exactly. As an example about this, look at uh, uranium. So I have a a 30% plus cash position. So people are getting bulled up about uranium. And look at what happened on Friday. You were down like 10% on the spot price. I actually bought the dip and then sold it on the day. Yeah, it's like a stupid day trade. But, you know, if you didn't have cash to take that advantage, you kind of miss, you know, you're going to miss opportunities like that all the time. Shrub, I couldn't agree with you more. And the problem is, look, uranium made a huge, you know, good for you. You made money in uranium. Uranium made a huge move back in like September. You know, it went up like 75% a month or something like that, right? And then for like the next five months, did nothing. And it wasn't until, you know, this Russia thing comes out, starts going again. So the problem is, and I'm very bad at this too. So, you know, <laughs> I, I'm still learning this because, you know, I, I fall prey to, to FOMO. It's like, gee, I don't have enough uranium when it's going up, right? And then when you're getting hosed, it's like, why the fuck did I have so much uranium? And so the problem is whenever you see the Twitter mob or this is a bit vulgar. The Twitter gangbang, when they're all in, usually it's right to fade it a little bit. But you got, but it contains your time frames. Because, like, you know, if you have a hardcore Canadian mafia guy, you know, I'm just going to pick on someone, a friend. Like, you know, Marcellus, who I love, okay? If you're like, you know what, don't bother me. This stuff's going to be a lot higher a year from now. Then the conversation we're having here right now, right here today, Shrub, is a waste of time. You know, it's just going to appear as a blip on the chart. Yeah. So, so that that speaks to time frames. It speaks to what you're good at. It speaks to your risk profile. And if the view is, you know what, Eric Nuttall is going to be up owning an island somewhere, and all these Canadian oil stocks are going to be up 100 percent a year from now, don't bother me about the next two weeks. I really don't care. But if you're day trading shit, and you're looking for setups. And, you know, you think price is truth and you're subscribing to the Nigerian Brothers newsletter and you're in all these idiotic rooms on here and you're measuring your, your P&L day to day, then you get a different answer. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other perspective that I would add is just, you know, that I'm not in a professional setting anymore. So all I care about is my personal account. And that leads me to analyzing should I be long commodities or not? In a totally different lens, I can accept massive drawdowns. And so I'm losing just as much sleep right now thinking about whether I sell a Peabody, you know, whose normalized earnings at spot now is probably approaching 20 bucks. And yeah, it looks crazy that the stock went from 19 to 26, but you know, it's normalized earnings just went into the 20s. Uh, and there's 15 other examples of stocks like that that I'm looking at. And so I'm losing just as much sleep saying, wait a second, this is actually potentially early innings on a life-changing trade uh, versus, holy shit, there's so much uncertainty out there. Um, do I need to cut my exposure in half? That, like I'm losing just as much sleep on the right tail as I am worrying about the left tail. And, and that's all about my perspective. I'll, I'll just throw in for my own thoughts. Like, and, and I think just tweaks, you just touched on it. Are you managing the money for yourself or, or, or for 
or for someone else and, and or family and friends. Like I'll tell you for, for my brother, um, I manage his money and, and he's in like six or seven of my highest conviction trades and, and 50% cash. And then for my money, I, I keep wanting to get more cash because to take advantage of these things that Shrub and George just talked about. And yet I can't, every time I, I built up a cash position, I ended up buying something else because it's just such good value. So, so I think, I think time is important. I think, is it for yourself or for other people and, and, and how you actually respond to that uh, to take advantage of, of the potential risk and rewards. Hey, Lascap, you had a question. Yeah, guys. Uh, first of all, T-Webs, thanks for organizing the spaces as always. Um, sorry if that's been brought up already. Uh, dialed in a bit late. I want to pose kind of an open question to the group. Um, now that supply disruptions have kind of made it to front page, I wonder if it will change the course of monetary policy over the next 12 to 18 months, because as has correctly been pointed out, uh, tightening will not increase supply. In fact, on the contrary, if your cost of capital is going up because of higher funding rates, then uh, you're more likely to produce even less than you were. So up until now, that hasn't been the main concern kind of, but now it has become. So does anyone here think that it will change the, uh, the progression uh, of uh, how central banks will deal with that? Over the next I, think, I think they will, 100%. Because uh, they were in a tough spot before. Look, you should look at the two-year the, the, the two tenure. So the yield curve is flattening like a pancake, which is a sign of recession, but it also shows that if they, if they hike by more than two times, they invert the curve, which they don't really want to do that. So I think we went from, I don't know, where people are saying about like six, seven, they're going to do two this year, and they're going to blame the Russians. I mean, think about, you know, keep things simple in your investment process. Think if you were like Powell. Two weeks ago, you were screwed and, you know, panicking. Oh, my God, I'm going to do QT and I'm going to raise seven times. And I'm going to look like a complete idiot in the history books that I'm tightening, uh, you know, when my year-on-year comps on the fiscal span is going down. And then suddenly, Russia. <laughs> You're like, well, you know, due to the global uncertainty, blah, 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 blah. So maybe, you know, maybe they do four times, two times. Maybe they're still the pace, but whenever the market goes down on something else, I think they're going to use Russia as an excuse. Now, the counter-argument, though, is that inflation is now highly political, so there will be a pressure to bring inflation down. What I'm saying is Russia is now a good excuse for uh, a lot of things. Now, does that make me less, less bearish on NASDAQ? No, because if you remember your history from 2000 to 2000. Two, I mean, the Fed was cutting rates and the Nasdaq was puking anyway. So I'm, I'm actually not really, I don't think they're going to help the market uh, that much. Hey, Koala, you have your paw raised? <laughs> yeah, I, I think to uh, bring it back to the original topic, because this is very complicated when we get into the geopolitics. I think what Tweb's question, and I think we're, we're, we're expanding the conversation, but I think the question that we're all pondering here is if you were in this commodities trade that a bunch of us have been in, um, were you in it for 20 to 50%, which is what you've kind of seen in some of uh, the coal names or the alley names? Um, or were you in this because you saw a cycle where you're going to see a three to four X 
um, over the next few years. Um, and you've maybe had some of that price appreciation pulled forward, but none of these names uh, have really reflected, maybe with one or two exceptions, but none of these names have really reflected the cycle, if that was your thesis. So to the question of, do you take some off the table here or do you step out of the trade? Um, you almost have to go back to where you were before Putin lost his mind during the Olymp when the Olympics were going on and say, uh, was it right to be long commodities before that event? And if your answer was yes, I think your answer is still yes. You want to be in this trade. Um, now, if you're in Citadel or Millennium, um, you may have sized down this trade because you've made your gear and that's just the risk framework and the risk model that's imposed upon you. But if you're investing and not trading to a point that someone said earlier, um, if you're if you're looking further down, if you're looking beyond surviving the month and putting up positive P&L every month, um, look, the way billionaires, get, and I hate to put it this way, but um, every self-made uh, wealthy investor at some point said, I believe in this trade, I believe I have high conviction in it, and I'm going to let it ride. And they got proven right. Um, so I think to kind of recenter this to Twebs's point, um, I think if you were bullish commodities before Putin crossed the red line, um, the right answer is to stay to stay constructive because you've just had one more step to the bullish case. But everything that was there before Russia is still there. Um, that's just my recentering point. I I totally agree, and I'll just add one thing on top of that. I. 100% agree with what you said about Citadel and Millennium. And the reason why I'm excited is because I think it just became, you know, patriotic for Fidelity and Wellington and Columbia, uh, you know, to start looking at coal and LNG and, and uh, you know, oil and gas if they're behind the curve. And I, that's probably a more controversial statement than the Citadel and Millennium one. But, but I really feel that we're getting close on that point. Look, I'll, I'll just say that um, I met with some really some people I respect immensely. I won't say their names. Um, out of respect for their privacy. But one person said to me last week, uh, I was telling BMO five years ago, they had way too many gold companies that are all junk here. Uh, they're selling trash. They're just collecting salaries. You need more base metals. You need more copper companies. And he said to me, Koala, uh, my new theme, the new big theme for me after I've been proven right is uh, national defense and security. You are going to see, and I put this in my thread and unfortunately, uh, my prediction thread for the year, but unfortunately it looks like it's really going to now really be in focus. Um, a focus on uh, America's supply uh, and finding quality resources um, to keep things flowing. Um, so yeah, I, I see a world where BlackRock, Evie Hambro is going to be asked, like, what are you doing besides just owning Freeport to uh, support financing new supply? We are we aren't yet having that conversation, but it's about, to, but it's going to happen. I think it starts happening in the next twelve months. And we haven't even talked about the re-rating of, which I think you should have a re-rating of U.S., Canadian, and Australian producers in some way. That's a great point. Uh, sorry, George, you had your hand raised. Yeah, I just want to repeat um, to go back to the prior speaker's point because he said he wanted to bring the question back to. The topic that you said at the web, and I think I answered that question. I said it depends on your time frame. You know, if you're in the latter and you're an investor, you stay in. If you're a short-term trader, maybe you take some chips off the table. 
So it depends on your time frame. I, I can't repeat that enough. The second point, what's really changed? You know, if you think this is just a short-term thing, and the Russia thing will kind of hopefully go away, you know, as uh, Trump was saying, we could walk in one day and Kathy Woods is up 10% and the energy is down 10%. Um, but you then think about the longer-term situation. And I can't remember who was having this made this point to me. It wasn't an original thought. Most of us, it's not an original thought. We just try to collect intelligent things that other people say. You know, in some respects, the longer-term outlook for energy has actually improved. I don't know what the price is here on your screen, but there was a lot of conversation from some people about, um, you know, you have Shell and Exxon, all these companies, BP, pulling out of Russia. And, yeah, it doesn't affect production today, but looking down the road and lack of investment and blah, blah, blah. And with Russia being the second biggest producer of oil in the world, that may have really long-term fundamental uh, impact, even if the Russia geopolitical Ukrainian thing solves itself tomorrow. So you got to answer your, you got to answer what's changed in the long term. And now, um, and now I'll, I'll make one contrary point. Again, life is never so simple. These are all true. They all, but they many of them go against each other. My gut tells me this trading feel, and I can, I can, I'm not betting on this, and I've just brought my exposures way down. Um, if you look at sentiment, and we had Tommy Thornton, who's an excellent chartist, he was looked, reporting out on the sentiment indicators in the room we had yesterday, and uh, the, D, the, the, the daily sentiment indicators up at 96. And if you look back, whenever it's been there in the past, not a good sign. You can burn that off by either you know going sideways or down. So maybe the price of oil doesn't have to go down very much. Or even if it goes down, maybe the oil stocks won't go down very much because they're more long-duration long assets. But sentiment's on the roof. The other thing I'd point out to you is, actually, I could use some help here. It's not why I'm talking, though. I got onto a big dust-up this morning on Twitter, if anyone cares to look. Um, I called out Cuppy, and I'm happy to talk about if anyone wants to get into it, for his sort of reckless plunging into um, RSX and Russian assets. I think a day or two before the shit hit the fan. And my problem wasn't so much that he made a bad call. We all make bad calls. That's not the issue. He thinks what doesn't seem to understand this. Rather, it's the hubris and the arrogance and the overly promotional pumping that he employed. And more importantly, and I'm not trying to, you know, assassinate Cuppy here, although I wouldn't cry if I did, um, the sort of willfully blind... Um, let me scratch that. The sort of supreme confidence that he's got the geopolitics all figured out. And I know that I don't know. Nothing against youth. I was young once uh, before and wish I was young again. But one of the benefits of being older is you make a lot of mistakes. You've seen a lot of mistakes. And one of the things, a great line that I stole from somebody recently, I'll say it twice, I'm not old enough to know everything. I repeat, I'm not old enough to know everything. And I've made so many mistakes like you couldn't believe. And I just hope others can learn from my mistakes. But the point I want to make is, on this one, and important, is the sentiment observation aside from Tommy Bilton's observation. The pushback I have gotten on the cuppy thing, and it's really very relevant. It's like when you try to talk to somebody about Bitcoin, they don't want to talk about fundamentals. They just say, well, number go up. 
Well, no, 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 no. We can't talk fundamentals. I mean, number go up is not is not a substitute for uh, an appropriate, you know, good answer. And the pushback I got to my points about Cuppy, where you know he just threw shit against the wall, was pumping it. Actually, if you look at the, 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 the his report, it's time to be reckless, reckless in investing in Russian assets. I mean, I, and I actually retweeted out the reprint from. Irving Fisher famously said in October 16th, 1929, you know, the stock market's reached a, a new permanent plateau. And I said, Cuppy's quote is going is to be right up there with Irving Fisher's call. Anyway, the point of all this is the pushback I have gotten from the Twitter bro, from the Cuppy bro, they are like Bitcoin maxis. And I just think that, and, 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 and you know, give give credit to Guppy. He's made good money. I'm not taking anything away from him, right? My issue isn't right, his performance, but people are so dug in on this energy trade right here, right now, and I know life is not linear. You know, we all may say, ah, don't worry about it. We had a JCPOA deal. Everybody knows. You look at the numbers, only three quarters of a million barrels. Who cares? It's not going to change the fundamentals. Yeah, I, I know all that. I agree with all that. But, but, you don't think the authorities, one way or another, would like to try? I underscore try. So don't come back at me and say, oh, well, they can't keep it down. I know they can't keep it down. But try to get the price down? So you get a JCPOA agreement. Who knows if that's a trigger or it's not. Or rumor of some Putin getting taken out or whatever the hell it is. You got the foaming, the new, the guys who are the, you know, expert armchair immunologists. They're now all expert geopolitical strategists. And they're all expert oil economists, okay? They're all in. Sentiment's at 96%. And with respect to the prior speaker, you know, ask yourself, has anything really changed from two or three weeks ago? Yeah, one very important thing has changed, which was, which was omitted, and that's price. If someone had, here's a thought experiment to you. If someone came to you two weeks ago and said, hey, I'll grant you, everything's going to be up 30% or whatever it's gone up in, in two weeks, would you, take, would you sign that deal with the devil? I suspect 99% of the people in this room, if they weren't short-term money, would say, well, yeah, can I take 30% and then buy it back later? You would have said, damn straight. So the trader instinct to me just says, and Tommy Thornton put it very well, this is the end. We're going to multiple time frames. This, none of this rant is relevant if you're a long-term investor. But if you're saying, hey, George, what's the chance that, you know, all these energy names are down 20%, you know, in two or three weeks or in two months? Or put it another way. Is this a good time to be buying right here, right now? And Tommy Thornton's answer was, whenever you're seeing sentiment at this sort of a level, I mean, it's just not what he does. When you feel a need to force a trade as opposed to the trade coming to you, I just think, right, put it another way, put it another way. Forget about your cost basis. As Peter Lynch would always say, Mr. Market doesn't know and doesn't care what your cost basis is. You And I asked Tommy this question yesterday in the room, if you're in there. Let's say you take a job at a new firm. So they don't think you're a smart guy. You get no credit for the fact you've made all this money in energy stocks the last year. Shot clock gets reset to zero. What do you do? If, you, if I gave you $100 million today, what would you do? And I actually would like to – I'd like to have that, – that's the question. Not, oh, I'm up so much and I can't sell it and I believe in the long term. I'm not going to have tax – no, 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 no. That's completely the wrong way of looking at it. Yeah, I'd like I'd like for people in this room to answer the question. If you start a job tomorrow, and someone gave you a hundred million dollars, you got no positions. What would you do? 
Thank you. I'm gonna, I'll just so say, I'm, I'll just I'm say, I'll just you, say very explicitly here. I put out uh, a tweet probably that was a two to three year buy and hold book uh, that I put together for a group I'm speaking with. Um, and I would say that I would still hold those names today and they've worked. Um, I, the reality is this, your book. Excuse me, excuse me. Yo, I'm going to interrupt you as I always do. I'm really getting annoyed with the way you're talking. I'll tell you why. Could you try to take a victory lap on a call you made a few months ago, okay, which is irrelevant. No, 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 if I gave you a hundred million today, even if you're bullish long term or whatever, okay, would you put a hundred percent of it in today? Would you put twenty percent of it in today? That's the question. Okay, just don't. I went into. I went. I'll answer that. I'll answer that. I'll answer that. I'll answer that. I'll answer that in two sentences. Is fully invested going into the situation. Remain fully invested. Okay, so so someone comes tomorrow to you tomorrow the hundred million. New account. Today's tomorrow's the first day. You're going to go 100 percent invested. Yes. Okay. Good. That's an answer. Good. Fine. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to answer it slightly differently, and I would just say that in in my in my view, the fundamentals have accelerated a hell of a lot faster than the stock prices. So prices are up, but the you know if you think about the meteorite that just hit the thermal coal market or the met coal market. Or the oil market, if you think, uh, you know, if you think that there's really four million barrels offline, then you know, and you think that sanctions are are real, and you know, you can't just light switch them off. Then, in my view, the fundamentals, um, the fundamentals have have changed a hell of a lot faster than the prices. But I, I'm just going to reiterate: there, by no stretch of the imagination, was Koala taking a victory lap there. Uh, Otto, go ahead. You have a question. Hi, Twib. Uh, hi, Shrub. Hi, George. I had a small uh, question. In this market, let's say, do you think it's good to be positioned in companies undergoing mergers and acquisition as a safer bet and earning safer returns than positioning in a broader market or different sector per se? Sorry, I, I actually, I missed, I missed that question. Can you repeat it? Yeah, so I'll repeat it. Uh, so, so my question is, let's say, like George said, you have given this much million today. Then uh, would your preference be investing in companies who are possibly being in news about getting acquired or some M&A on cards? That would be your first preference or would that be after the commodities or other sectors? basically as a safer bet in the market to make money at this point in time. I apologize. I'm just having some audio issues on my end. Um, 
Shrub or Koala or Matt, you, you guys have, you guys can either take the question that I didn't hear or uh, or just um, my connection was breaking up to uh, T Web, so I, I I didn't hear it fully. Look, Sorry, I heard, I, I'll I repeat. I heard part of it. I'll repeat it if you want. It was about merger, the uh, kind of basically being merger arb situations as a less risky way given the volatility in the market. Jayesh, was is that a fair summation of the question? Yeah, yeah, that's the fair summation of the question. Look, I, I think that question comes down to the answer is a function of um, how you your risk tolerance and what you want to express. Um, and I think that basically, if you have conviction in the fundamentals. Um, then that's a personal question you're going to have. I think every investor is trying to figure out right now. Um, do they want to go to special situations um, and call it, let's call it pure alpha trades um, versus um, having macro exposure, beta exposure, commodity exposure. Um, I think that all comes down to, I think I've made clear my views personally, uh, my conviction being where it is, um, I'm probably not going to be trading, say, Activision for uh, merger ARB spread. Um, I think I can make the most alpha and the most PL um, with my skill set elsewhere right now. But it all comes down to individual views. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I just got a, I just got a DM and somebody said, "Hey T Webs, is there any way we could get raising the bar up here right now?" To which my answer is no, because he disagrees with me right now. <laughs> Sorry, can I just ask, uh, make a comment on this risk arbitrage thing? Because I used to run a pretty, pretty big uh, risk arb book, um, and uh, risk arb is a classic example of a very low beta strategy. I call it alpha strategy that does well when the market is, you know, weak or selling off and everyone feels great. And, you know, allocators give you a lot of money to put to work. But when the market really craps out, it's a really bad strategy. Um, so unless you're doing this for a living through the cycle, and I, I did it for 15 years, risk arbitrage really, man, just, 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 just let it go. <laughs> Do other stuff. Thanks for sharing, Shrub. I always just view that as a strategy where you need some serious funds to compete with the big. No, we had. Look, I mean, we were running uh, serious money, and you know, you you lose leverage to amplify the returns. Uh, But it's a very stressful strategy. I mean, you need people. uh, You know, you need a couple of analysts to monitor everything. You know, we would we would be proper specialists going through the conditions and read the filings and read the offer documents. I mean, it's a tiring job. I mean, you know, you miss one thing and you get screwed. And there's quite a few people doing it. So it's, I, I, the reason why I gave up doing it is actually because of that. It, it, the alpha was so difficult to get and tiring that I just couldn't be bothered. Picking up pennies in front of the scene. Uh, that's exactly right. Broken trade grows up your gear. That's exactly right. Hey, hey, Bill, you just requested to speak again. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I just wanted to make a point of view. I, I don't think there's just... Um, risk arbitrage that again I'm, I'm not a heavy hitter like uh, shrubbery is uh, in terms of uh, assets but uh, if you're a small sort of investor I think there are special situations galore that aren't just risk arbs um, the ones I play in a lot and again you know obviously off limits for people who are managing big amounts of money but things like uh, liquidations I mean liquidations in my view are are some of the best uh, 
risk-adjusted returns in the marketplace. Um, but again, you know, they and 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 what they tend to show up at exactly times when the economy is not doing well, as you can imagine, because more firms fail. But uh, it is something to keep an eye on. And I, I know in 2020 and 2021, it was a good time to be doing liquidations. And and oh, hold on. So to Bill's point, um, I was making a comment about merger arbitrage. Special situations, 100% you should be doing them in this environment. <laughs> um, because, Bill, I mean, you're right. Like, you have uh, distress situations, you have spin-offs, you have... Re- in times of distress, you have actually a lot of alpha you can capture from uh, uh, from events. So that's what you should be yeah, doing. Yeah, I mean, it, My- it, it's it's not for everyone because it, t- it takes, I would say, intense research and you really kind of... Um, want to have to spend the time to slog through stuff like that. But uh, like, for example, in 2020, there were at least four or five liquidations that probably got better than 20% returns. Um, And there were even a few um, chapter 11s where the equity was not going to be toast, like Garrett Motion, Tuesday Morning. There were were a few. And and coming out of bankruptcy, you know, you you had triples and quadruples. I'll I'll say also here that um, given we're talking about commodities, Watching last week, Norilsk GDRs, which I can't touch now because I'm just a personal investor in the States, uh, but that thing breaking a buck and the ADR printing a five handle. I mean, and I said this in real life to a few people, it's like Russia went back to 91, 92 all over again. Um, No institution can touch that stuff. That is right now the quintessential special situation if you can take emotion out of it because those could very well be zeros, but you could wake up in five years or 10 years and Norilsk is still generating $3 a share of free cash flow. Um, but it's like if you have a way to, to, to basically buy those certificates from people who are for sellers and just pocket them for five or 10 years, um, someone is going to do that and make a fortune. There are special situations to Shrub's point out there. But you have to understand the risk reward because, I mean, just because you see the upside, there's a reason opportunities are there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, not, not that I want to argue with you, but I, to me, a special situation is completely market neutral where you're, you're playing an event that uh, the downside is extremely limited. Um, the, to me, that's that's what a special situation. What you're describing to me could be a special situation, but it, it's if there's a lot of downside to me, then it's uh, it's technically not a special situation no and i think koala now is he's talking about buying it now not like a week ago because now you're basically buying it no real skirt i don't know i mean we can't buy it anyway so it's a theoretical discussion but i'm just saying it's a half a billion company it's worth 50 so if you put like 0.1 percent of your portfolio could go up 100 times i think that's what you're saying koala right yeah i'm saying if you could the no institution can touch it but would you put one percent of your book into a position that could be a hundred bagger uh, over five to 10 years. No, you very well could lose it, but it's, it's, that's a sort of asymmetric that if you can figure out how to express it properly, something to think about. Yeah, I mean, let, let me tell you one special situation I'm involved in, for example, which I consider a special situation. So, uh, you know, Valaris came out of bankruptcy. It's an, it's an oil rig company. Um, it is a special situation. Uh, going back to my earlier point, I feel there's more upside in oil services companies now than oil companies 
well, you know, there is a company that uh, every credit fund was uh, puking and the equity was written off before. So it relisted. It's already up a lot since uh, since it relisted. But, you know, that's kind of a special situation because it's a it's a, a reorg, what they call a reorg equity. All right, guys. Well, we've gone for close to two and a half hours. Um, anybody want to throw out any closing comments, or is that a is that a good place to uh, to cut it? Hopefully, this crisis ends um, sooner rather than later. Um, there are some things more important than making money. I think that's how we should close it. I think that's a very good closing uh, koala, and you know, just uh, see my pin tweet. Uh, you, Red Cross Ukraine, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, we sent trucks with supplies uh, two weeks ago to Ukraine. Now we cannot reach the people inside. Uh, that's why we're supporting the Red Cross, because they're one of the few organizations that can. Uh, thank you. And then, you know, just a special thanks to all the guys on Mintweet. Uh, it's been tough times, and I think together, working together on a few things, it's... Uh, it's been very helpful, valuable, and profitable. So uh, thanks, guys, for uh, being part of this. Thank you so much, everybody. And look, if the world is totally different a week or two from now or three or four weeks from now, then then we'll get uh, another one of these scheduled right now. It's just, you know, I think everybody's head is spinning. And so as long as you're intellectually honest, willing to change as new facts come in, uh, you know, conversations like this are just incredibly valuable. So so I really appreciate everybody who uh, who contributed. And I'll end it with that.